Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 882 with David Dressler. There is dignity in making sure the lighting levels are right, making sure that the music is at the right volume, making sure that the temperature is good, that the table doesn't wobble. There is dignity in putting great food on a plate and presenting it thoughtfully to the guest. There's dignity in checking in to make sure that they're happy. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Sculpture Hospitality. Are you sick of managing your inventory? If the answer isn't yes, um, I'll be surprised. Honestly, I'll be a little surprised. Uh, and if the answer was yes, then there's Sculpture Hospitality out there looking to help you. Leave your inventory management to the experts while you focus on making your customers happy. With Sculpture, not only can they do the physical inventory counting for you, but they can dive into your inventory data, combining that with your sales and purchase data using seamless integrations to give you real insights and visibility into your restaurant's profitability and putting your profits back where they belong. If you're ready to gain complete visibility and control of your bar or restaurant inventory, get a free, no obligation inventory consultation from Sculpture Hospitality. Visit sculpturehospitality.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Chow Now, a commission-free online ordering system and food ordering app helping restaurants feed their hungry customers. Over 20,000 restaurants trust Chow Now for their online ordering, and this is because Chow Now helps their restaurants keep their profits, own their online experience, meet their customers everywhere, and make every diner a regular. With Chow Now, take unlimited commission-free orders through Chow Now's app and site, and there are no setup fees or monthly payments. And what I really love about Chow Now is that you get to own your customer data. This is something not all third-party ordering apps can claim. And when you schedule a demo, don't forget to ask about leveling up with Chow Now Direct, Chow Now's comprehensive online ordering and marketing package. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 30% off the Chow Now Direct annual plan. Sign up today at chownow.com slash unstoppable. That's chownow.com slash unstoppable. Now, I know you know about Plate IQ, but do you know about Plate IQ's new spend management feature? Okay, let me tell you about it. Plate IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Plate IQ card. With Plate IQ card, there's no credit check, no minimum bank balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card issued easily. And I've got to tell you that with Plate IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. And you cannot forget that Plate IQ still offers bill pay, incredible insights, and custom approval workflows. To learn more, head to plateiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you can save 25% off implementation. What up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder, this podcast needs your support. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast, and you can come hang out at restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com and be a part of the conversation. So today, we're actually talking to somebody uh, who is one of the co-founders of Tender Greens, and I'm not 
a stranger to the tender greens brand because we've actually had Eric Oberholzer on the show, who was one of the original co-founders and we've had the current CEO, Danielle Bruno on the show, but I've never gotten quite as deep into the details of the tender green story as I did with this interview with David Dressler, one of the other three co-founders. And um, they actually just came up with this book, 10 year plan, how the founders of tender greens scaled their heart centered brand. And I mean, this whole book that they wrote, it was actually co-authored by David Dressler and Eric Oberholzer. Uh, this book is basically the, the format of re- the restaurant unstoppable interview where they kind of share their entire story from the beginning to the end uh, and being able to read a book that is essentially the outline of my restaurant unstoppable uh, interview was super helpful for, because I, I basically had the whole story before the interview, not to mention I, I interviewed Eric Oberholter and I got to speak with Danielle Bruno, the current CEO. So I was already familiar with the tender greens brand going into this interview, but what I was able to get, I think that was unique in today's story versus other stories. And, it, and what you'll get if you read this book is what happens after two or three locations, four locations, like when you, when you're small and you really start to scale and how you as the owner have to transition into different roles through the maturity of your brand. And that's one thing that you get from this book is how you have to transform while your business transforms. So this was a really great read, uh, an incredible interview. Uh, we go along and, uh, this is kind of what I, I want Restaurant Unstoppable to become. I want it to be a, a deep, thoughtful, meaningful, impactful conversation. You definitely get that today. So stay tuned because you have a great episode coming your way. Here it is. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, co-founder and former chief people officer at Tender Greens and current coach and strategist advisor at quietadvisory.com, David Dressler. My man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Completely. Yes, man. And you guys, your story, uh, I really enjoyed your book, The 10-Year Plan. Uh, Your book is basically the outline of a Restaurant Unstoppable interview. So this is going to be really interesting. I never had this much detail going into an interview step-by-step along the way as I have for your interview today. So I'm going to do my best to pretend like I don't know a lot about your story and just be curious and pull back the layers. But this is going to be a great episode. Uh, Let's get started, though, with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? So the mantra that uh, still carries me to this day and, and informs a lot of my decision-making and a lot of my work with my, with my clients is happier at home is happier at work and happier at work is happier at home. Happier at home is happier at work and happier at work is happier at home. Did I get that right? You got it. Why is that your choice for today's quote? Because there's no separation in the end between what we do at home and what we do at work. And if we feed one, we feed the other. And if we... Um, if we uh, neglect one, right? Yeah. If we, neg- <laughs> if we neglect one, we hurt ourselves because yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, if you're completely uh, absorbed with what's not happening at home that you want to have happen at home, you're not doing your best work. Yeah. And, and if you're bringing your work home with you and all of your frustration, then you're not doing your best work as a dad, as a mom, uh, as a husband, as a wife, just for yourself, you're neglecting yourself. And then how can you show up best for the people around you that you care about? So how do you show up with this mentality every day? How do you make sure you leave time for both? So, um, one of the ways is to take care of me. Another way is to have transition moments. So I'm a big fan of having daily practices. 
Start the day with great intention. Start the work day with great intention. End the work day with great intention. And end the night or the evening with gratitude so that I am always transitioning from one thing to another with intentionality. So how do you start your day and your work day with great intention? What's that look like? Uh, so my day starts with uh, some level, and this is not like a religious thing, but like a spiritual connection, a, um, uh, a look at what I'm excited about, who I can serve today, uh, what three things I absolutely positively have to get done in order for me to feel like it's been a successful day. Um, those kinds of questions, maybe taking a snapshot of all the people that are important to me in my life and saying, am I, am I good with them? Am I right with them? Am I doing my best with them? Uh, that's a great way to start the day. Um, then get out of bed and do the rituals of, of whether it's whatever it is for you, water, coffee, yeah. food, exercise, meditation, prayer, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Then uh, when it starts with work, it's looking at the plan that you've made for yourself. Does, do, does that need some adjusting? Is it ready? Again, look at those big three that need to get done in order to feel really good about it. Look at the calendar for the day. Look at the moments where you're going to be able to take a breath. And really head in with this sense of uh, not I'm going to get what I, I get and then my day is going to be over and it's going to be done. Yeah. But what do I really want to achieve out of today and am I setting myself up for success? I have this alert that goes off on my calendar every night at 6 p.m. And by that time, I hope to be done with my workday. And it says win tomorrow today. And it's my reminder to look at tomorrow to have a plan going into tomorrow and just being intentional like little so is there something like that that you do too to remind yourself yeah so that's the that's the end of day end of work day practice which is to look at tomorrow first of all say okay what did i learn today what what really went well in my work day what didn't go so well and in terms of what can i do better tomorrow what are the big three for tomorrow what are my intentions for tomorrow what's the calendar for tomorrow did i just totally screw the pooch and overschedule myself? Are there any adjustments I need to make? And then, okay, so now I'm going to turn this off for today. How am I going to show up when I walk out of my office and my kids are there, my wife is there? How am I going to be the best version of me? I love that. I love that. Great way to get this thing started. Where does it make sense to start sharing your story, though? I know you started early, but where do you want to start today's story? Oh, man. Um, I guess at the very beginning. Okay, let's get, take us there. So what, what is the beginning for you? So I was born in a hospital. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I think where, where it makes sense to start is that um, my, my mom, um, the single mom, had me and my sister living with her. And then uh, my sister went off to university. She's a little older than me. And, um, and my mom worked three jobs. So summer vacations were not... Uh, a chance for me to spend more time with her. She still had to work. And so I ended up um, going off to my aunt and uncle's hotel where it was um, three quarters gulag and then uh, one quarter um, chance to be out in nature, chance to um, ride boats, water ski, that sort of thing. But, you know, it was expected that I'd help out. So I, um, I worked in the dining room pouring coffee. I rented the paddle boats. I carried suitcases. And I'm six, seven years old. I remember standing on a on a glass rack and washing dishes at a at a big Hobart machine, you know, probably completely illegal by today's labor standards. But well, family, you know, there's rules, right? Does it have to be immediate family, or <laughs> I don't know what the definition of is. You know, but hey, it all worked out. But I think the reason that I I say that having spent those summers there, uh, in hospitality, in working in a family environment, um, 
taught me work ethic. Yeah. You know, the, you had to earn your, your chance to go water skiing or you had to earn the time off. So, um, so I worked hard and uh, I did what was necessary and I got uh, an education in what business looks like, in what serving people looks like, in responsibility at an early age. Something must have struck a, a chord with you at this time because you ended up going straight into school for hotels specifically, correct? Yeah, I had two uncles who had uh, done the same sort of indentured service years <laughs> at the hotel a generation before me. And they had gone off to school and learned it and been successful in hospitality and the hotel business. And I admired them and wanted to be like them. What was it that you admired about them? Well, why? Um, my uncle, um, in particular, my uncle Stan is a guy who uh, was a, an executive at Four Seasons Hotels, Hyatt before that. And I remember being a kid and, and, uh, and he would send my mom uh, clippings of articles that he'd been in hospitality magazines. And I remember just reading about him and thinking, wow, this, it's so cool that he has built a, a reputation for excellence. Yeah. And I remember just as a young kid thinking, that's a cool thing to do. Yeah. That, that's a, you know, you're in service to others and, um, and you're able to carve out a niche for yourself as somebody who brings uh, humor and excellence and leadership. And I just thought that was really great. Awesome. Thank you for getting into that. So you decide to follow this path. You're inspired by your uncles. Take it from there. So I, I go to school. Um, I have a chance to study abroad in Switzerland for four years at uh, a, an amazing place. Uh, I study at the Hotel School of Lausanne. I major in hashish and working my butt off. I, <laughs> uh, I have to pay for my education. So I'm, I'm, I'm working catering jobs. I work at a restaurant. I, um, I have fun and, you know, there's 40 countries represented at the school. So yeah. every chance that I can to get on a train and go visit another country with a friend of mine, I'm doing it. So I'm seeing the world. That must be so cool. And age. I have just turned 18. That's crazy. Right? Oh, my God. I'm so jealous of that time in your life. It must have been amazing. But what, in what way did you transform, if at all, during this time? How did this influence you? Well, I guess uh, one of the major influences was seeing different places other than my own home and realizing how um, no matter where you go, people are just people having their sense of dignity, wanting to elevate their lives. And in in Europe, I got a sense of what really matters because I was seeing families that weren't my own. I was mm -hmm. visiting in people's homes and seeing uh, them um, just in, in, in honoring their children or in experiencing culture or the level of dynamic conversation happening at the dinner table. I just had a, a fuller appreciation for diversity, for people in all walks of life. And I think that informed me as a leader later when, when I was um, myself hiring, training, developing people from all walks of life. You said people you saw you experienced people just wanting to experience a certain level of dignity what do you mean by that was that like a common thread a, a singularity that you noticed what do you mean by ex people just wanting to experience dignity so one of the um well, i think one of the tenets that we talk about in the book and certainly uh that i have felt as a leader is this notion that people get out of bed in the morning and they don't say you know i'm gonna go to work today and do a terrible job or today I'm gonna 
I'm going to just be resentful and ungrateful. People deal with the circumstances that they are uh, are dealt and they, they do the very, very best that they can. And people at the end of the day, I think, want to live a life that's fully expressed. They want to have... Um, they want to take care of their, their families and the people close to them. And they want to feel like they're doing that, that they feel that they're doing a good job, that they're appreciated for doing a good job, that they're appreciated for, for trying hard and having success, and that they get some level of compassion and empathy when things don't go their way. And the more people you meet that are different than you, I think the more that becomes clear. Yeah. I think um, one of the, the, the folks who wrote, um, what do you call it, on the back, Chip Connolly, uh, the author of Peak, right? Uh, who who gave you a review? Well, you wouldn't call it a review. What would you call it? The maybe the it's a testimonial, a testimonial or endorse- yeah. on the back of your book. Uh, his book Peak, I think, is a book that everybody in the service professional or the, the service profession should read. And this idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. At the core of it, we all need and want the same things. No matter who you are, where you're from, what your background you have, we're all at the core of the same. I think realizing that at the age of 18 and realizing that we all want the same and being seen, having dignity and just being seen and valued is so high on that priority list or low. I should say touring the it's, it's after it's like the third thing on the list of things we need. Right. And it seems like you realize this at a very early age. Yeah, I I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm also curious being able to go study abroad, hospitality, hotel specifically. Do you think other cultures have more of a sense of pride in the work of hospitality no doubt why is that well i can't say that uh i can't say that this is broadly uh in the united states and i don't want to overgeneralize because there are places where hospitality in the united states a sense of southern welcome for example or uh midwestern values makes it such that that welcoming people taking care of them is not seen as uh, entry level or transient. It's actually dignified and respected and admired and sought after. And so um, that's one thing. On the other hand, in, in this country, uh, there is a great deal of, of um, perspective that, that service industry jobs are transitional entry level, the place that you're, the thing that you're doing while you're trying to do something else. Um, and I think, well, certainly that's, that's sad and, and, um, and regrettable because people have a stigma working in hospitality sometimes where they feel like they're not good enough simply because they're doing this job. And there is so much to be respected and applauded in serving others. And, and we have nothing more than to look at the pandemic and who was showing up and what was considered a, uh, a frontline position and the people that were working in food service, even when restaurants were only doing takeout, were still showing up and putting themselves in harm's way to f- feed the people. Yeah. So, so that's, that's one thing. Abroad, uh, in many countries, service is still looked, like, looked at as an art. Yep. The, the art of hospitality, of, of learning wine, learning food, learning service, and and being then, proud of that yeah. and understanding that not everybody can serve. It's weird. Like, um, I think I'm, th- I'm specifically thinking of the Indian culture right now, um, down to delivery drivers. And the, the, 
because of the the way that India is very congested, like you need people to move things around. Everybody can't have a car in India. It's just not physically possible. So many people per square foot. So like they rely heavily on delivery services. But even that that act of that's hospitality, that's service. It's you know it's delivering food. But even the act of just be like, having a purpose and knowing that that purpose is needed and being proud of that. I feel like we did. There's a disconnect that people just aren't proud of this work for some reason. Whereas in other cultures, that just to have purpose, to know that you fit in, you're a part of the link, is in itself. You know, you're you're a link in the chain of society that you need this link to think for things to work. I don't know why we don't take a sense of pride in the work we do because we're needed. What's going on? Like, am I am I stretching right now? Like, we're because you had this unique experience abroad and seeing different culture. I was, I was curious what your perspectives were on that, but you're sharing it. Same. I think, you know, I, I don't know if you saw, you and I saw the same documentary about the, the hundreds of thousands of lunch kits that are delivered in Calcutta and Bombay. I didn't see that Bombay documentary. And, and, and Mumbai. Just incredible. It's amazing. The it's, it's logistics. A, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, everybody has a sense of like, my job is to make sure that you eat today. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's enough. I'm delivering sustenance. Yeah. I'm feeding your belly. I'm feeding your soul. I'm feeding, I'm feeding your families. I'm allowing you to do the work that you need to do in order to make a living for your family. That's, that's enough. Exactly. It's more than, yeah, enough. I don't, we don't need to go down this, this rabbit hole anymore, but I was just really cur- curious on your perspective because I knew you, studying hospitality abroad, getting, being shoulder to shoulder with these different cultures from all over the place, it's cool to see how we stack up our values stack up against other cultures. And I think this is one area where we could be much better just taking pride in the world of hospitality and service. We just don't seem to, especially right now with nobody coming to this industry to work, you know, there, there, there isn't a sense of pride. Hopefully we can change that. Yeah. I, I think we, we can, we can inspire each other. You know, the, um, the Latino culture in, in Los Angeles, throughout California, across the United States, um, Folks who um, who show up for work with a great amount of heart and helpfulness, and uh, and are racing across town from their first job to their second job to sometimes their third job in order to uh, to pay their way for their families. Uh, I have so much respect and admiration. Um, and listen, it's it's great work if you can get it, and uh, and it, it should be appreciated. And, and, and restaurant operators, um, I think, do well to respect the efforts that are made uh, and to make it easier for those folks who are really just trying to get through their day um, faced with traffic, congestion, scheduling. You know, you, you end your shift at 3 o'clock and you got to be at your next job That's at 345 and you got to traverse the city <laughs> the LA on, traffic. on public transportation. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I, I hear you. So you spend time in, at the Swiss National School or the Swiss National Hotel School. Uh, you, you come back to the States. What year is it when you come back to the States? Uh, 91. 91. Mm-hmm. And you spend the next basically 10 years working in hotels, right? Mm-hmm. I worked for Hyatt and then uh, I wanted to be closer to my brother who was living in New York at the time. So I, I moved... Uh, I moved to New York to open the Four Seasons on Fifty uh, Seventh Street. Okay, um, so between the high and the Four Seasons, where would you say you grew the most as a professional? Oh, without a doubt, at, at Four Seasons. Who uh, were you going into that? My first job at the Four Seasons New York was uh, night cleaning supervisor. Okay, so I worked the graveyard uh, with, um, with with the team of of, of of dudes that cleaned the kitchens and the dining rooms and. 
And who were you by the time you left the Four Seasons? What was your title? Uh, director of Food and Beverage. Director of Food and Beverage. What was that, that, that growth? How, you were there for what, like eight years? I think I, I think I did six six, years? six hotels in six years. So what were, like what was the life like? Like what, take us through that evolution. Your time at the Four Seasons. So it was. Um, I wanted to be seen as uh, the go-to guy for a career advancement at the company. I wanted to be the youngest of everything, and I wanted if uh, if the executive committee or the planning team, as they call them, there uh, were sitting in a room. And they were saying, well, who should we throw the ball to? They'd say, well, give it to Dressler. He can handle it. And so um, I did everything I could to, uh, to show up with a plan, to, um, to solve problems, to take care of my team, whether I was working as a bar manager or a restaurant manager or I was in catering or banquets or, or stewarding. Wherever I was, I wanted to uh, take care of my team, do good work, and, and – and, Listen, I, I might not have been the smartest in the room, but if but if uh, if somebody could say there's nobody harder working than David, then I was happy. Yes. So, I mean, was there a key mentor during this time? One person in particular who helped mentor, helped guide you, helped steer you? Does anybody come to mind? I had a lot of great managers. Um, there are a few. Uh, one is that uncle, uh, Stan, who... Um, who was instrumental as a sounding board for me and a career counselor. And then I had, I had bosses, um, John O'Sullivan, Chris Hunsberger, um, Rudy Mack, um, Mehdi Eftakari, uh, great, great dudes that were um, able to teach me a thing or two about uh, how to show up right. So reflecting back at this this time with your uncle specifically, because you admired this guy from a young guy, a young boy. You know, you looked up to him. Now you're working with him. He was a, almost a career counselor. You said to you, "What was that advice?" Reflecting back, looking at the conversations you're having with your uncle, what do you remember him advising you to do? What was the advice? You know, um, if if I if I think back to um, one of the big mistakes that I made as a as a young leader is that I was so obsessed with this idea of of being responsible and taking care of everybody and uh, and doing a good job that I didn't often ask for help. So I didn't call him with a specific thing in mind. Um, I would call him or he would call me, and it would be around um, the next the next move. And so strategically, he was really helpful. But also, I think just seeing his example was really good for me because uh, it brought me back to, well, if, if he can do it, then if I try hard, I can do it too. So paint that picture of the example your uncle was setting. Uh, admired, respected, moving up the ladder. Why was he admired? Why was he respected? They, uh, he had a business card that was kind of a joke. I think some uh, somebody had made it for him, and uh, it listed his title as thaumaturgist. So what, what is that? It's a miracle worker or magician. Okay. And so he was the guy that uh, had a reputation for making things fun and unusual, whether it was an executive um, 
checking into the hotel from a particular company, he did his research and found out what the, the this man or woman loved most or what they loved most but wouldn't necessarily admit publicly and having that as the amenity in their room or just creating outrageous moments for that guest to feel special. Um, that's one thing. And then he's somebody who spent, uh, I think, while he was while he was a taskmaster and and um, and probably difficult to to work for because his expectations were so high. He also was very caring and, and made it really fun for people to work. And how, how would he make it fun? Well, I never worked directly for him, but okay. but I know that he was a really silly guy when he wasn't, you know, making sure Being everything serious, was perfect. Yeah, yeah. And so he made people laugh. And I think there's a lot in a high-pressure job to making people laugh and feel good. You know, when um, when we opened our first Tender Greens restaurant in Culver City, uh, we would repeatedly, like, I don't know, if we knew it was somebody's birthday on the line, we'd turn off the music in the middle of the lunch rush and start singing happy birthday, turn the person beat red. Just, <laughs> and, and because we had an open kitchen in the middle of the lunch rush, the guests would start singing happy birthday too. Uh, and so all of a sudden there's 50, 60 people <laughs> singing happy birthday to this poor salad maker who's yeah. just trying to get through their shift. And we would prank each other, you know, in the traditional kitchen way. Or, you had or, some funny stories in the book about uh, some of the pranks awesome. you would do. <laughs> awesome. And then, and then, um, and if it wasn't that, we'd have we'd have impromptu dance parties in the middle of the dinner rush, or just just whatever we could do to keep it light and fun and silly, and allow everybody to like, sort of unhunch their shoulders yeah. for a second. I like the details you gave us too with your uncle and this ability just to to see people and to do the research to 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 show people that you care enough about them to to give them something that wouldn't be obvious to go the extra mile to be seen. Would we just take that little extra to to, to, to do a little bit of research to to show people we give an f? To, to show up for you in a certain way that nobody else is willing to put that put in that extra mile to be seen like you said like they he would discover things that they would like that they wouldn't necessarily be public about but just that little extra can go so far right what does that do when we do that it creates connection mm. it creates um a sense of feeling appreciated mm-hmm. and seen and i think that's the thing that we have in the hospitality business uh as sort of the last bastion of social contact is the ability for guests to come into our places and feel seen, feel yeah. appreciated. Listen, uh, you know, Tender Greens is not a fine dining establishment. I think the food is on that level, but, but from a service model, it's like a taqueria. But to the extent that we have the opportunity to um, connect with somebody at the cash register, like, how are you doing today? Yeah. How are you feeling? Hey, listen, take this cookie. You know, mm-hmm. wh- whatever that is, or to make it easier to to carry their bags, or to offer to help a, a, a mom or a dad that's struggling with the order and a stroller and you know three other kids in tow. Whatever we can do to make somebody feel like, wow, somebody gets that I'm having a day. Yeah, that's that's um, the beauty of, of our business. If we slow down enough and if we hire the right people who care and if we train that as part of our culture is helpfulness, kindness, authenticity. That's the stuff that makes a huge difference. Yeah. You mentioned a few other mentors along your, your journey. Um, is it worth hovering over any key lessons or moments before moving on to your next role, which I believe was at Shutter? Or is there other stops along the way? No, I don't um, Just as you ask the question, you, you ask great questions. Uh, just, just as you ask the question, uh, uh, 
a man named uh, Clive O'Donohue flashed in my mind. And one of the things that, uh, that he taught me about was uh, documenting systems. And while mm. this isn't the same sort of flowery, cool spiritual part of what we're talking about. It's necessary. Um, I worked for him in uh, outside of Dallas in Irving, Texas at the Four Seasons. And once a year, we would host the Byron Nelson Golf Classic. And this was a thing where, I, you know, I, I'm probably exaggerating, but there was like 20,000, 30,000 people on the land w- walking around watching three days of golf. And, um, and we handled all the concessions for that. So, you know, cookies and pizza and hot dogs and hamburgers and beer and wine and you know, da, da, da. all these VIP, um, all these VIP, uh, pavilions and tents and suites. And, um, and he would write everything down that happened. And from the very first year that he did it until the last year he did it, he would be revising that so that every time the the classic came up he'd pull out the ops binder for that and we wouldn't have to reinvent anything we wouldn't have to think about anything we just refer to it unless we were making it better we would stick to the plan that was outlined that had been refined year over year and that's a big part of going from uh, a single unit restaurant to two to three to ten to twenty to thirty is refining systems and I think the appreciation for documenting systems and refining systems and using feedback loops is something that I learned from him. So. Yeah, I think the whole idea of creating and systematizing your business, if you're like, oh, wow, we don't have any systems, processes, or procedures, we need to create those. You look and you compare yourself to other companies who have those things. You're like, where the hell do we start? When you compare yourself to a, a fine run operation, it's intimidating sometimes. But what I'm picking up from your story is just start. Just do it and have and make a list. And then the next time you're going to do it again, how do we refine? How do we, I think this, this, well, what is the secret to, let me ask you, what do you think the secret is to what's the lesson here that we're, that we're distilling from what you're sharing with us? Okay. So, uh, repetitive tasks are, uh, the bane of everyone's existence, particularly when, uh, there's nothing that documents how to do it, which means that we're constantly reinventing how to do it. And for anybody in a kitchen who wants to have consistency so that the cucumbers always look the same or so that the bread always looks the same or whatever, there's a system involved. There's a standard that's set. And we know that when we're training, there's a certain level of broken telephone that happens. And so there's a deterioration. If I don't have a picture of it to show somebody this is what it's supposed to look like, then it's well what does it really look over like over time it drifts it drifts yeah, yeah. right so the same for for big undertakings whether that's opening a restaurant and documenting every single step from a year before till 6 months after well we 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 sort of we forget stuff we forget steps and as a result uh you know for for us it was that we always opened our restaurants without artwork on the wall and i think we probably opened one restaurant where we actually had a sign up because we hadn't ordered the sign early enough. We hadn't, we hadn't uh, allowed for uh, how long it was going to take that sign to go through uh, approvals with the landlord. Or uh, we realized that we hadn't uh, figured out how to run the, the electricity to the sign or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, this, is a, this is a protected landmark building. We can't put that kind of sign up. What, whatever it is, whatever those steps are leading up to opening a restaurant and then uh, – postpartum after the birth of the restaurant all of that needs to be systematized so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time so that we don't have to forget yeah 
and we don't have to remember even. It's just provided for us. So just start, just start with making a list. The first time you're doing something, what's everything we did? So the next time you'll have a little bit of a jump start, and then you refine. And then you and rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat until that thing's honed in. Yeah, 100%. And I think more than just a list, backup information. Mm, what do you mean? Give me an example. I don't know. If you, if you always order the same phone service, make a copy of the f- of the service provided in your account and put that somewhere where you can grab it so that when you call the phone company and they say, well, how many lines do you want? Well, do you need call waiting? Do you need this? Do you need that? You have it all. It's all answered for you. You don't have to go and ask anybody. So you can actually hand that piece of paper to somebody and say, call the phone company and get this. Yeah. Right? So if you're extracting yourself from tasks, and this is um, there's another lesson that we can talk about in a minute, but if you're extracting yourself from things uh, that somebody else could do so that you can focus on the things that only you can do for your company, yeah. you need to provide excellent information to the people that you're delegating to. So is this like an example of protocol of like, if this, then that, if this happens, you don't need to know what to do, but you need to know where to find the answer. And here's where you find the answers. Yeah, hundred percent. And the only caveat is if you don't know what to do and your gut is telling you that um, this is a bigger decision and you don't have information, then by all means, come and find me. Okay. So if, there, if you can't find the answer, if we haven't given you the answer, then that's your cue to reach out to me. But before you come ask me for help, go to where the answer should be. If it's not there, then it will be there after our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Because, <laughs> because you have just shown me that there was a hole. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Great. That's a great lesson to learn. And I mean, that's what we learned. That I think it's so important to spend at least 10 years going around surrounding yourself with the best and, and stealing these little nuggets from them that will set you up for success moving forward. Um, why did you loo- leave the, the, the Four Seasons? What was the, the purpose for getting out of, from underneath that great organization? So um, despite the fact that I had great teachers and mentors, bosses that I, that I admired, uh, I didn't love the jobs that they were doing. And, the, and it seems like the higher they went up the... Um, the mountain of their careers, the more that they were doing things that didn't seem like that'd be all that fun. Yeah. Uh, land, you know, like, uh, all the oh, things that you started doing around 2016 and 17. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, well, well said. So, um, if, if I didn't see that, that up there, that the thing that I was striving for was something that when I got there, I'd actually want it. Yeah. That was a problem. The other thing that started to happen was that I was getting the entrepreneurial itch. Mm. You know, I, I, I didn't want to work for other people. I didn't want people telling me what to do. I wanted to, to do it for myself, but I was petrified. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that big organizations, their, their biggest Achilles heel is autonomy, a sense of autonomy. Uh, for the people. It's hard to, to create a, a sense of autonomy for people in such a structured, scaled operation because there's to be consistent, there's only one way. And it has to be the same no matter where you are in the organization, geologically, right? So you can't break off to, to be created to have that sense of autonomy because it has to match up over here too. And is that sense of autonomy what you felt like you were missing? To do it your own way, to break free, to, to have a, a sense of steering the ship? I don't know if it was if it was that or if it was the idea of creating something mm. like um, like to actually create a business yeah. as opposed to working in a business. Why was it important for you to want to create something? Well, f- for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was to 
be my own boss to, to have that feeling. But I think uh, on a deeper level, um, I was catering to, uh, what did Eric say in the book, uh, the newly wed and the nearly dead? Uh, you know, working, working in the luxury hotel market. Your target market is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's right like 1% one, one of 1% uh, of people that can actually be a part of that, participate as guests. So we're talking about the shutter hotel or well, whether, whether it was well, both yeah both you know, high, high touch you know high, high fancy high ticket yeah um and i i think uh, eric and i and, and matt too wanted to wanted to create something that was f- for the people mm-hmm. you know that that where more people could go and, and benefit from um really really great food in a scaled down service environment that would allow people to to take advantage of it because they could afford to do it, not yeah. just not just on a special occasion, but anytime they want. And this to. is like 2001, 2002 that you're at, at Shutter. You're working with Eric, so you got to put yourself back in that place. What was the food scene like back then? The we, it, it has evolved a lot over the years. We, we're very privileged today to have access to the type of food we have access to. But back in 2001, 2002, like you said, it was the one percent that had access to high quality food. Yeah, there was there was fast food at one end. Yeah, there was the high end at another. There was family dining, which was essentially a, a, a lot of crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were one-off cafes, you know, in in in, in cool neighborhoods. But there wasn't uh, there wasn't a fast casual marketplace. There weren't places where you could go and get great product uh, at a reasonable price. Um, None of that really existed, and Tender Greens was born out of the really the uh, the idea of a taqueria, you know, a, a place where you go and you stand in line and you watch your food being made, and it's really good and delicious. And at the end of the day, there's no sticker shock, and you go and you eat. Yeah. So at Shutter, um, was there any anything worth hovering over here other than this is where you met your future business partners? As far as evolution as a professional, things learned. Things that set you up for success further on down the road, mentors. No. What was your title at Shutter? I was a director of food and beverage. And when did you join Shutter? Two thousand one. So you were there for only two thousand one. Actually, it took. I forget it took. You might have started talking about Tender Green, but it, it took like four years, right? Like, so when did the take us to the point where the first conversation started? Like, when was the seed planted? So. Um, Eric and I uh, went to a little dive bar across the street called Shay J to do his uh, year-end review. Okay. And so you're giving him a review. I'm giving him a review. I, I had hired him as the executive chef, and we, were, we formed a great team. Um, and it was time for a review. And it was time for his review. And That's, I a good cliff- That's a good cliffhanger. We're going to take a break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to, to hear about how the review went. This episode is brought to you by Sculpture Hospitality. Let's face it, running a restaurant is hard work and very time consuming. You are constantly managing customers, employees, vendors, menus, marketing. The list goes on. Want something taken off your plate, especially something that's time consuming? I don't know, maybe something like inventory management? 
Is that a yes, a resounding yes? Well, then Sculpture Hospitality can help. Leave your inventory management to the experts while you focus on making your customers happy. With Sculpture, not only can they do the physical inventory counting for you, but they dive deep into your inventory data, combining that with your sales and purchase data using seamless integrations to give you real insights and visibility into your restaurant's profitability and putting your profits back where they belong. One other thing I think is really neat about Sculpture Hospitality is that you're not just paying for the inventory management. You're also paying for the expertise of the individual doing the inventory, whereas other inventory solutions just give you the system and not the human being. If you're ready to gain complete visibility and control of your bar or restaurant inventory, then get your free no obligation inventory consultation from Sculpture Hospitality. Right now, visit www.sculpturehospitality.com slash unstoppable. That's sculpture, like the pretty things made out of stone that artists create, hospitality.com slash unstoppable. We are back, and you are just getting to the point of your story where it's time to do Eric Oberholzer's year review. Uh, you're the director of opera, or director of beverage, food and beverage. Yes. He's the executive chef. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're his direct report. I am. Okay. He's my direct report. He's your direct report. Okay. So uh, we walk across the street to this bar. We order a whiskey or whatever. And um, I'm giving him his review. And I'm not feeling like wanting to be his boss. (laughs) Okay. And I'm pretty sure he's not feeling like he really wants to be my direct report. But, you know, we're, we're, we're... we're good working buddies. Yep. I think we've been out drinking a couple times with the ladies. Um, but at some point, I, I ask him this sort of perfunctory question, like, where do you see yourself five years from now? You know that review question. Yeah. And he says something like, can we have an off-the-record conversation? And I'm like, sure. So, you know, we hit stop record and, um, were you recording actually? No. Okay. I was like, no, oh, but was like a- let's, uh, let's talk. So he <laughs> says, and he kind of launches into this micro pitch about this vision that he has for this restaurant. And I'm sitting there thinking, absolutely. This sounds amazing. Side note, I can't help but think to myself, should those types of conversations be off the record? What, what do you mean? Wouldn't you as a direct report or somebody at the top of an organization want to know if your team members had desire for growth and to move beyond? Wouldn't if, if you have the right sense, of, like the right mentality, isn't that, don't you see that as an opportunity to, to invest in that person to maybe be a part of what they're trying to do? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why would he feel like he would have to say, like, I don't want this to be on the record? Well, if you're working for a company and your yeah. boss works for a company and you're getting your paycheck from that company and you're saying, hey, I would love to get the hell out of here yeah. and go do my own thing. Not great for career stability, don't you perhaps. Want your people to be honest and open about that sort do of thing? Do I? Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. I would much rather be able to say, wow, let's, let's work towards making that happen. Or if your heart's not in it anymore, let's let's figure out how to transition before you hand me your two weeks notice for sure. Yeah. But I mean, I think a five year plan, like I think we should, we should encourage our people to tell us, I would like to know that you're going to be out of here in five years. Imagine having a five year heads up, you know, okay, who can we start replacing you with? That would be amazing. Exactly. Like if, why don't we encourage people to be more open, honest, like it's a win win for everybody. Yeah. Is it not? I think 
today people are more willing to say things like that. They feel more comfortable. Like, here's what I want to do. Whereas back in 2001, like, like you're saying, like, you don't want your boss to know that you're planning to get out of there. They, they might try to get rid of you before you're ready. You know, like it's fear. You know, um, at Tender Greens, we had in the early days, um, we offered to any, any manager, any restaurant manager, executive chef, if you have a passion project that you want to explore, um, we want to know. Yeah. Because we'd like to explore it with you exactly. and, and even partner with you. Yes. And, and one of the people who's now uh, vice president of operations for our company is, is, is a guy, Pete Balistrieri, who, who started uh, making salumi in the restaurant. Uh, at first, uh, you know, just small cuts of prosciutto here, um, but eventually expanded, started to take over the walk-in with a salumi chamber. This is the and, second chef at the second location. That's right. Yeah. And, and who, who now has a company, P. Balistrieri Salumi, that, that makes a line of incredible handcrafted salumi products. Did you have a hand in that? Did I? Yeah. As far as helping him launch that, or did you, did Tender Greens invest in this? Or we did. We were. We, this we, is exactly we, what I'm talking. We about. were partners. He, I mean, he he did all the heavy lifting. Yeah. You know, we we maybe paid for some small wares and 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 provided some legal and financial advice to him. But he did it all, and and we got to be partners with him, and and it was a win win for everybody because that product was was in our restaurants and you know we were probably his best customer and it was a calling card for him to expand the product to other places you closed the loop on my thought and that's exactly where i was going when we create a culture and an environment where people feel open and honest to be able to tell you the truth about where they see themselves in five years and you can help them get there you could also benefit from helping them get there it's a win-win situation so like he obviously you had a relationship with eric where he felt comfortable to tell you the truth but Clearly, there was a disconnect between the two of you in the overarching business where they wouldn't have felt comfortable knowing this. Yeah, I think the, the assumption on Eric's part was, I'm going to take a risk here. Yeah. And I want there to be like a disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to get fired if I tell you this. Yeah. <laughs> this is off the record. Yeah. And I think also Eric was um, probably looking at me as, a, as an ally for, for building the business yeah. because we complement each other so you well. You sense that you were probably in the same place he was. No doubt, I yeah. think, uh, and and Matt too, our our third partner. Yeah, we were all within six months of age of each other. We were all uh, frustrated entrepreneurs who hadn't gone out on 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 their own yet. Um, I think we all knew if we didn't talk about it directly. I think Eric and Matt probably spent more time talking about it than I did with those two so guys. Were you the third leg of the the tripod that came in. That's right. Okay, so why did they bring you into that? Was that ever a part of the story? Like, what? Why did they say you? Two chefs, um, super creative, uh, um, great pedigree, great touch for the food. Not necessarily business people. Yeah. Not necessarily a high degree of administrative experience. And and I'm a front of the house guy. Yeah. So I think it was sort of a match made in heaven that Mm -hmm. the three of us could come together as um, as three people who brought their own unique expertise which might be a, a big word but um at lanes. least at least to, oh yeah lanes at yeah. least to, to opening a first restaurant of many mm-hmm. um we each brought something special which i think is vital to partnership what were what were the lanes what like you know you said front of house administration 
Uh, what was Eric's lane? What was Matt's lane? So um, both of them, like I said, chefs. Uh, both of them fine dining pedigree. However, um, if Eric was leading the charge on menu development, for example, Matt was figuring out the means of production to be able to do those Logistics. menu items at, at high volume. Yeah. All right. Master tinkerer, master systems guy. Got it. Uh, for us at our level. Got it. So back to this idea, you, you're doing this yearly review. Uh, Eric pitches you his, his elevator pitch. Do you remember what it was? If you had to like recite it or like paraphrase what the pitch was at this point. I think it was, um, I, I don't remember what he said specifically, but I know what went into our pitch when we started to shop it to, to potential investors. And what we said was it was, it's the food that you'd make at home if you had the time, right? Um, it's the setting of um, having friends over on a Sunday afternoon. How much of the, the vision of Tender Greens was built at this point? Because you guys are doing a lot of interesting things. Uh, for example, trying to vertically integrate your, uh, your investors, your, your purveyors, your farmers, like things like that. Was that all part of the plan at this point or did that come later? 100%. Okay. So we we started out with um, we started out with our ten year plan. Okay. And you know as 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 you read in the book, um, not only did we start with a ten year plan, we named our company TYP Restaurant Group. Stands for ten year. Talk plan. about manifesting destiny, right? Right. And and we and we pulled off the ten year plan in nine years because we had a ten year plan, because we had uh, a a commitment to each other to our team members, to our guests, to our investors, that we would do this. That what we, was the commitment? What was this? Really paint that picture for us. Okay. So uh, the, first, the first safe combination uh, at the first restaurant was 10 10 years, three guys, 30 restaurants. I think that kind of says it all. We are going to work really hard. We're going to take money from our investors with no no payback before that, no dividend, no, no checks, no nothing. Don't come to us. Don't ask. And for 10 years, we're going to create as much enterprise value as we can. These three guys are going to stick together. They are going to make it happen. They are going to put the business first before friendship, before partnership. There is what is the need of the business and that's going to drive how they behave with each other. It's almost like a baby. Like when you get married, like, you get married to somebody, you're committed to that person. But once the baby comes into the picture, they become the priority. Our needs become second. 100%. Yeah. At, at least that's the way it should be, I think. Yeah. So, and then, and then 30 was 30 restaurants. And okay. we put a pin in the map uh, all through uh, California and, some, and, and other places where we felt that we could open some great restaurants and do good business. What made you think that your vision, your idea of a restaurant was going to be unique enough what was your unique selling proposition? How did you know this was going to work? Again, it was, uh, it was uh, if, if Alice Waters was going to get into fast food, this is what it would look like. And Who's Alice Waters, for those who don't know who that is? The godmother of slow food, yeah. uh, of food done right, of, of putting the ingredients first, of a little bit of salt and a little bit of pepper, and, yeah. and let it shine. Seasonality. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, so there's the, the sort of the... the the food concept and then the, the service concept, I, you know, I, I said we modeled it after a, a taqueria, but the idea was if we can keep, um, if we can keep it simple, if we can have people get in line 
and wait, wait for their food and be entertained by watching that food be made. Uh, and if we can take away the hostesses, the bartenders, the bus, well, we had busters, but we didn't have servers. Uh, if we could take away the fancy stuff and keep the prices low, then we could fulfill the mission to, to democratize uh, slow food. So you, you removed all the fluff, all the extra stuff to kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? All the, the stuffy stuff. Mm-hmm. The things you don't need to, but but you were delivering the high quality food. All the little things in between that say this is a high, uh, oh, what's I don't know, um, fine dining. What what are the benefits, the operational benefits of the model that you took that were that weren't there before with with previous models, delivering the food that you wanted to, to deliver. I don't know if I'm going to answer your question right, but I, I don't but, know if I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> so what were the benefits of this business model versus the traditional business models that you guys were operating in? So we were uh, maximizing labor dollars in order and, and streamlining uh, a production facility in a small amount of real estate so that we could keep our prices low and in doing that attract a, a lot of volume. How else were you planning on keeping your prices low? Other ways that we were keeping prices low or able to keep prices low? Those relationships that you talked about earlier uh, with our farmers and our purveyors, um, having some of those folks as um, as investors trading product for shares in the company was a way for us to make sure that we um, we formed uh, allegiances with uh, with those guys where they realized that there was an upside for them. What were the benefits for them? Well, having, having stock, sure, it was a risk for them, but having stock in a, in, a, in a company that we had told them was going to be big one day that, um, that was a showcase for their products was an amazing opportunity for, for some of our farmers to have um, a growing concern uh, as, a, as a client uh, that was going to order more and more from yeah. them, and so uh, and and be a calling card so that they could say, "Oh, and our 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 greens, our tomatoes, our herbs are the ones that you see at Tender Greens," which was setting uh, a standard for food excellence that had been unheard of outside of fine dining. So you're creating a win-win situation. They're winning because you're making a promise to have exclusivity to their service, their product over a period of time, and they're winning because they have loyalty from you as a purchaser. And Were you getting a discounted rate because of this, this investment, or was there favoritism? For sure. What kind? Of, like I, what? I, think, I think pricing consideration was okay. important because they knew that, um, that if they raised their prices, and certainly there were times where they had to, but if they raised their prices on us or they didn't give us preferred pricing, then they were hurting the investment that they were making. Because the you're going to be less profitable. That's right. Less profitable is less opening new restaurants. Yeah, exactly. So, I guess were you the first? Like, do you know of any other restaurant that had this mentality of we need to vertically integrate our supply chain? I I don't know of any. I, I'm sure that th- there were. Um, this was Eric's idea, idea specifically. He pitched this to you, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Where did he get this idea? Did he ever tell you where this came from? This this where he birthed this brainchild? I think Eric's the kind of guy who. Um, who wants everybody to win. Yeah. And he was looking at, from a practical perspective, probably looking at ways to not have any invoices come in. Yeah. But also... Wait, so you guys uh, eliminated invoices with this deal too? 
Well, listen, uh, for the first two years, I don't think we ever had a bread invoice for the, for the focaccia <laughs> sandwich rolls because, because that bakery was a partner. Yeah. And certainly um, there were others where there was no invoice or it was an invoice that was a lot lower than it would have been otherwise. Yeah. How many partners did you go to? How many, vertically, how many partners did you vertically integrate into your business? I'd be making it up, but, but approximately. Uh, if there were if there were three or four key uh, people, you know, you know, like the the top ten items on your product list uh, account for ninety percent of your food cost. Yeah, those those top items were integrated in some form of partnership. So proteins, uh, greens, what else? Bread. Well, bread's a lower ticket item, but yeah. but uh, certainly uh, proteins of all sorts, greens and vegetables. Got it. Um, at and least in our model, those yeah. are really significant. I think that I love that idea of creating win-win situations. I love that idea of, of of going to the best and aligning your brand with the best and creating up and saying, "Hey, like you help us, we'll help you." It's in your best interest to help us because long term, and you what you end up doing what thirty times the original investment. Correct. So yeah, it helped out. Like when you have that mentality of win-win and long-term thinking over time, it almost always works out. Not Amazing. always works out, but like that mindset. What advice do you have for somebody who wants to recreate what you did as far as vertically integrating your investors, approaching these investors and trying to get them on board? Like how, what angle did you use? How hard was it to, to, to sell this? So I know that Eric and Matt went up to Scarborough Farms um, at the time early on with, with a half sheet of paper. This is before business plan. It said, this is what we're thinking of. And we would like you to be our, our greens partner. When did these conversations start happening? When they were still at shutters, working their nine to five, two thousand two, two thousand one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they so they went up there and and painted this picture up in Oxnard uh, to the Stein family and said, "This is what we're planning, and we'd like to know that we can count on you, and this is what you can count on from us." And they were immediately on board, and so they were just waiting for us to get our shit together. And when we finally did, um, you know, the boxes started arriving. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> And by the way, that's a complicated um, concern because... What's that? What's, what's that? Well, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to buy uh, freckled romaine and uh, red butter lettuce and da-da-da-da-da uh, from you. But there's a commitment there to, from, from the farmer's perspective because they're going to start planting. And when they're planting, they're tying up field space for, for, for us. And if we weren't careful, and, and several times we made we made mistakes where we took something off the menu. Oh, it's not selling. We're going to change it, or we don't like the. We but don't. their process started months before. Months before, if not a year. Right, and when yeah. they're in full swing, they're producing something that they're counting on us to buy. Ooh, I never right? thought about that. And so imagine that you know you take something off the menu that's planted in the ground and growing, but you don't give them any notice so that they can start replanting. Now they've got they've got boxes of lettuce with no one to sell it to. And they've got nothing planted that they could actually sell to somebody. Yeah. So, that, so when I say it's it's not a simple thing, it's a complex partnership of mutual respect and, and mutual care. And lots of conversation, communication is necessary. Hundred percent alignment there. Um. So, so that's one thing to keep in mind if you're taking this approach is like you're going to have to be able that your 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 layer of communication is going to be extended one branch out you got to keep that you got to keep these people in the loop and you can't you got to respect their profitability as well and what's best for them 
constantly measuring or balancing these relationships, right? So it's it's it is complicated or additional complexity as far as relationship management in a restaurant goes. No. Yes. Yeah. Um, so when did you guys officially open? We opened uh, in June of two thousand six. So they're almost like a five year period, two thousand one to 2006 is when is when this whole like whole idea was coming to fruition and ex- you're executing on it so take us through that journey of what that first five years looked like so um let's just say that uh eric and matt and i worked together let's call it for a year and then there was that evening at shay J having a drink talking about the future yeah then there was a certain amount of time where um the three of us would uh, either meet early in the morning at Pete's Coffee on Main Street in Santa Monica to talk and to assign tasks and to craft the business plan. and um, Or we'd meet on a park bench on the boardwalk um, and talk over things. And it felt like we were in this secret society, the three of us, because we had this day job where we'd be you know, talking about so-and-so's wedding catering in the ballroom or these events or the restaurant functioning. But then we kind of had a little um, like sparkle in our eyes because we had this secret. Yeah. So, um, so the business plan got crafted and um, we were at a, pl- a point where we could go out to investors. We had a, a, a pretty good pitch. When did you know you were ready to go out to investors? Um, I think once we had uh, a pitch deck and, a, and, a, and an offering document, um, we knew that we could go out and we we practiced a little bit and talked about well who's going to talk about what when we actually have these appointments and then we had to come up with a list of friends and family that we could we could approach. And How much start. money did you think you needed to raise? Uh, we our first offer was for nine hundred thousand dollars, yeah. and we thought we'd open three restaurants with it. Yeah. How yeah. many did you open? One. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so take us through that process. Things you learned. Any advice for somebody who's listening to us who's in that phase of of planning raising money what did you learn the hard way that you wish you knew that you know now that you wish you knew then so one is to really focus in on coming up with a great plan a great business plan and some people might undersell that as being uh, not so important if you have a, a a deck that's you know sells the dream that's enough but for us what we were doing in writing that business plan was not simply creating something that was going to be attractive to our investors but we were actually thinking through what we're going to do with the money thinking through how our business is going to operate so that we can actually deliver on the vision that we're selling to these investors and every time we'd go and meet with an investor they'd ask questions that were not necessarily answered in the deck and we'd go home. Sometimes we'd answer in the moment. Sometimes we'd have to go home and think about it. And when we went home and thought about it and had a conversation about it, we'd realize that that was an element that we didn't, uh, we didn't have thought through. So, so go ahead. Well, what I was going to say about that is that, uh, if you're a chef and you know all about food and you know how to set up a kitchen, you know how to staff a kitchen, you know how to motivate, you know how to do all that stuff, but you're not necessarily a great business person, that's important for you to think through because, because that's oftentimes the difference between a, a restaurant that has really great food and really great service but has no money in the bank 
and longevity of a prosperous business. Yeah. If you don't know anything about HR, that's a hole that you either need to find a partner who does yeah. or you need to school yourself or be part of something that can support that and that needs to be part of your budget. Or outsource a service. That's what Which I mean. there's tons Absolutely. of services to, that exist today that didn't exist back, back in 2002. Like people, people are starting to realize I can create a business and just be this to a company. A company doesn't need to have all these things internally today. There's services that you can contract and be a solution for now until you get to a point where you can keep it in-house. That's right. But if you don't think about it, yeah, it'll be your first emergency that determines that, oh, now I got to go shop for that. Yeah. As opposed to proactively mitigating the circumstance to begin with mm-hmm. by, by thinking those things through. And you know, one of our shortcomings early on was that we didn't really think much about marketing. We knew... We knew how to tell stories and we knew that we needed a PR person to help us tell those stories and get them out there into, into food trades. And, um, and that's all we did. And of course, it predates social media, but we were late to the dance on marketing because it wasn't something that we really valued or thought yeah. too much about. We had a really low level of sophistication. In that. I'm a little guilty of that too. I, I, but I do think there's something to be said about four walls marketing when you're first getting started and just taking care of that person that's right in front of you. hundred percent. You can't discredit that either. No, (laughs) listen, we, we staked our whole marketing campaign on it. It was let's, let's take care of, let's take care of the customer. Let's have great music playing. Let's have a great service experience and amazing food and hope that people go out and talk about it. And then, um, and then if we can tell stories about, our food or about our chefs, then that's enough. So what kind of stories you, you knew to tell stories, but where were you in 2005? Where were these stories living? Well, in 2005, they weren't living anywhere, but in 2006, oh, once we'd opened open. the yeah. restaurant, um, we had a PR person, Karis life. And she, she, um, she was connected to the food magazines and because we were doing interesting food at an unheard of price point with great values with great great value and and because we were doing something progressive um, there was there was a story there was a pitch there there was a tremendous amount of interest and at first the stories were about um, the food they were about our our farming partners they were about Eric and Matt and David doing something anti-corporate they were you know they were cool stories when we opened our second restaurant in 2008 I realized I'm jumping ahead but um, they became about Pete and Ryan down in San Diego, homegrown talent from Point Loma, California, opening a restaurant in Point Loma. Well, it had nothing to do with us, had nothing to do with Los Angeles, had nothing to do with anything but uh, a local neighborhood restaurant doing the kind of food that you'd spend a hundred bucks for. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, I'm interested. You said um, one of the first things you have to do is have a good business plan. What makes a business plan good, a great business plan? What was great about your business plan? In no particular order, um, imagine that you have a business and break it down into its departments to the core, uh, the core um, pieces, expertises of, uh, of, of the company and address each one. That's one. Think it through because what it will force you to do is think through the ones that you're not good at, that you shy away from. That's one. Two, um, write it from the perspective of allaying the concerns of an investor. So an investor has concerns about how their money is going to be spent, whether they're ever going to see their money again, uh, how they'll see their money again, um, what we're going to do to be prosperous. So we have to, 
if we're if we're asking for money, that's the the, the the main purpose of this tool, this investment deck that we're creating. Think it through from their perspective. Yeah, I wrote down the first time you mentioned. You said, "What do you what we had a, you had written down what we're going to do with the money?" So you have a plan. Like, give us this money. Okay, what are you going to do with it? Be be ready to answer those questions. How do you plan on making this money more money? You that's can't, exactly right. Yeah, you can't just be like, "Thanks for the money." We'll figure it out and get back to you when we have a plan. Like you got to show them that you have intention with this money. Um, what were the, the questions they were asking you that you didn't have answers to? Um, marketing. Some of our investors that were a little more sophisticated were asking about um, so corporate oversight, your board of directors, how decisions are being made, what, what prevents you from running off with all the money, um, how, do you, how do you vote yourself an increase in pay, like things that we're like, I don't know. We're, yeah, we don't even have a plan to pay ourselves yet. So when you would get these questions, what would you do? Well, like I said, we we we'd sit together. Either either one of us would have a smart enough answer to get to the next phase of the conversation, or we'd say, you know what? Truthfully, we don't know. Yeah, but give us a minute to think about it. And we'll get back to you. Yeah, I think one of the, the best pieces of advice I've gotten when raising capital is. Know that your your business plan is a living, breathing, dynamic thing because it's gonna get holes poked in it. And go into every deal, every conversation with ways to like to to listen to take away the no's. They're gonna tell you a no. Mm-hmm. Okay, why did they tell? Find out why it's a no. They're gonna because you didn't have an answer for this. Figure that out. Go back and and constantly just take away the no's. Take away the until there's no more no's left. And then, then you'll start to get investors, right? And it sounds like that's what you were doing. Well said. I mean, yeah. we, had a, we had a lot of no's. Um, I think primarily because we were doing something that hadn't been done before. Mm-hmm. And so there's a real easy way to poke holes in that, yeah. particularly in the restaurant business, a 95% failure rate. So we got, we got a lot of, uh, of early no's, and there were plenty of um, sad beers at local dive bars uh, where we'd sit and say, "Man, we're you know three months out, four months out, five months out, and we still don't have enough money to even get started, let alone finance an entire opening." So when did that start to change? You know, um, we got a yes, and uh, and it pumped us up. And when we got a yes, the wind feels like it's at your back for a minute. Yeah. And that prompts you to have more conversations. And I think the one, you know, one piece of advice would be if you're getting no's, work harder to get yeses mm-hmm. and, and know that a yes is coming. No, yeah. no K-N-O-W that a yes yeah. is coming. <laughs> I love it. So now the year is 2000. Uh, I think you guys opened 2006, right? Take us to that point. You, you got the money. You're going for it. Like what's going on? So it, it took a lot longer than we thought. And I... Uh, I jumped ship in 2003 to devote myself full time to uh, to raising money, and um, and that ended up being a two year process. I bet. So by the time we uh, and we structured our, our deal as a min max, meaning that we could raise half the money and then start using that money, um, but we couldn't use dime one until we got to half. So we got the money. Eric and Matt stayed with their day jobs uh, for a few reasons. Uh, one was because then they wouldn't need a paycheck. Yeah. Two was because they were using our employer as a test kitchen. We were running all of our menu <laughs> items through the menus to see how they'd sell. 
Um, three, we were using the ballroom on Sundays as a sort of um, layout test lab for what the kitchen would look like in the same way that they um, they did that scene in The Founder on the basketball yeah, court. Yeah. <laughs> we did the same thing in our ballroom. That's the second time that movie and scene was referenced in two days on the no show. No way. Yeah, Brittany uh, Valles. Oh, my God. Valles. Valles. Sorry, I'm from New Hampshire. I'm horrible with names. Uh, she said the same thing. Uh, it's funny. It's, what, what are the odds of that? Sorry, keep going. No, so, uh, so there were lots of good reasons uh, for them to stay. In the meantime, I'm out um, refining the deck, scheduling appointments for the three of us to go and, and, and pitch and working on our business plan. Um, we also start to look at uh, design, um, actually paying somebody to help us design the restaurant and um, and then start looking at space. So what were your biggest lessons through this process? If you have the money, it's going to happen. What do you know now again that you wish you knew then going through this process of opening? Uh, stay tight and scrappy, guard every penny. Where were you spending money that you shouldn't have spent money? I don't know that we were. We were so or frugal. You just underestimated the costs. Um, Oh, you mean why? Why? Why are we to get to three restaurants with that? <laughs> I think that was just ridiculously optimistic. Okay. Um, yeah. um, you ended up raising what? Nine hundred thousand dollars. And you and you ended up it ended up taking eighteen. Was it eighteen hundred? Sorry, one one million eight hundred. Oh, to yeah. open our first restaurant? Yeah. No, it's just that we we didn't we didn't get to we didn't get to three restaurants. We were we were always raising money, and okay. I, I think we we were we we had underestimated overestimated how much money we were going to contribute f- from margin okay. towards the build out okay uh and then um and then costs were were probably more expensive than we thought what's the most crazy thing when towards the end of your journey of opening this restaurant like you're getting close to opening day the budget's getting smaller and the you know the savings are getting smaller and smaller and smaller what's the some of the things you did the outside of the box thinking things you did to make sure you could get the doors open i'm wondering if you're thinking what i'm thinking but here's what i'll here's <laughs> yeah. the story that i'll tell that i'm not proud to I'm tell pretending, i'm pretending <laughs> like i don't know too much because right. i want to come on work it but yeah go ahead uh, okay so i'm not proud of this story but um so we get to uh final inspections the building inspector comes <laughs> into the restaurant and we had made these i thought well i think they were beautiful light fixtures um track lights encased in uh beautiful two by six beams um, on either side of these tracks and they were hanging from the ceiling and the inspector comes in and says, where's the, um, where's the earthquake strapping for these fixtures? Earthquake strapping? <laughs> yeah, you need, you need, these need to be suspended from the, from the cross beams of the, com- uh, the joists of the, of the ceiling in case there's an earthquake, in case they, they detach from their mooring. So we said, oh yeah, uh, we'll, we'll have those here for you tomorrow. So um, we're thinking about, well, how does that even work? And how do we do that without tearing open the ceiling? And da, da, da. So thinking fast, we go to, um, we go to uh, Home Depot, and, or I go to Home Depot, and I, <laughs> I buy uh, three ceiling fans. And the ceiling fans have that mounting kit. Yeah. And so um, I pay for the three ceiling fans on a credit card that is about to max out. <laughs> I go back to my car. I put the ceiling fans in the trunk. I open the boxes. I take out the ceiling mounts. 
I tape back, close the boxes, and then go back into Home Depot, go to a different cash register, and return the ceiling fan. I can see, I can see why you're squirming in your seat as you tell the story. Yeah, but, but you know, but it's a perfect example of like just getting creative and not saying it's not possible, but how can we do this? How is it possible? And just thinking outside the box. And yeah, it wasn't maybe the most ethical thing to do, but neither is putting hundreds of small businesses out of it. You know out of business either so it's and you've been using their business for a while now so, it's, it's uh, true we did we did spend a lot of money at home <laughs> yeah um uh, but i mean that's just the kind of scrappiness it takes to, to, to think outside the box and to make it happen if there's a will there's a way right uh so what was it like you guys open like take us through that process like were there things that you weren't expecting uh, again things that you know now that you could prevent anybody else from making those those same mistakes millions of them but um i think one of the things that happened um which was a happy circumstance, but overwhelming was that uh, back in the in in those times before social media, there was something called the Daily Candy, which was a an email blast that went out to many different cities, uh, and essentially told people this is what you should do in the next twenty four hours if you can, and this is some product that you should buy. Okay, and it might have been. Uh, it might have been a restaurant to go to locally. It might have been a, a uh, like a makeup product or some lifestyle thing to do or to buy. And it was a recommendation by the editors of the Daily Candy. We were in the Daily Candy. We were the Daily Candy the morning we opened. Wow. And so, um, and thank you, Kara, for <laughs> Kara's life, our first publicist, to, for figuring out how to get us there. But, but uh, that happened. And so um, our, morning, our opening morning, um, I went outside. And we had a jacaranda tree on our terrace. And... Um, it has these big purple blooms that fall and get really messy. So I wanted it to look nice. So I went out there with a broom to, uh, to uh, sweep. And I see a few people milling about, but most people are just walking by. I don't know what time yeah. it is, but it's early. Um, I come back inside and I'm doing setup and it's coming to 1130 and we're going to open. And I go back just to check to see if any more, if any more blooms yeah. had fallen, if it was going to be nice and there's people standing at the glass door, our front door. And I think, oh, that's nice. People wanting to welcome us. No, no, no. So I, I unlock the door. I say, hello. I say, we'll be right with you. And I look to my left and the line goes all the way down the block. Oh, my goodness. There was, an Enti- <laughs> there was like an Entenmann's uh, wholesale depot where you could buy the stuff that had come back from the grocery stores, like the brownies and cookies and cakes and I don't know hamburger buns yeah you could go and buy those for half price there and it was on the corner so i walked all the way down looking at all these people oh, good morning good morning it's starting to feel like sweaty upper yeah, lip kind what of thing did we get into <laughs> yeah and i looked down the next street the cross street and the line had continued oh, down man. The so like i run back to the, the restaurant i'm like eric guy matt we're we're in trouble <laughs> but hey it's gonna be a great 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 opening day so we opened and we um we did everything we could until about seven o'clock at night when we ran out of food and we had to close. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, what were your biggest lessons, though? Like, what were those growing pains? The things that in the first couple months to even the first year, like what what was the evolution for you guys during that time? On the um, just from opening to like you know you're figuring it out to like we're getting better now we're we're humming. Like, what was that process like? On the sort of silly superficial front, it was things like the size of our dishwasher, the size of our ice maker, the fact that we had these aprons, these precious, beautiful aprons with buttons on them that were hand sewn that um, we had to pick up at the dry cleaner 
every freaking day. Yeah. That we were constantly running out of ice, that we were constantly running out of just about everything, that we were making things in batches based on how many pots we could get on the stove, not thinking that we needed a bigger stove. And we were operating out of 1,700 square feet um, doing outrageous numbers. Um, so everything was hard. Mm-hmm. And it was like combat in that restaurant because everything was so tight and we were trying to staff up to, to deal with it that everybody's constantly hip checking. It was like a hockey game. So this is a, this is a considered, I mean, I know you guys use a different expression, but it was a fast casual uh, counter service, uh, like left to right type of operation or like describe like the, the actual flow of the operation. Uh, so the, the flow is that you'd walk in the front door. There'd be a menu there for you to look at. Yeah. There'd be somebody, a salad maker there to, to take your order that salad maker would own your order start to finish bring it down to the cashier where you'd be offered drinks dessert your food would magically appear on a tray and you'd pay and take it to your seat so in 2006 how many other people were doing this what like you were doing it taquerias yeah so what was it that was so popular early on why was it such a hit early on the food. Yeah. The food, the music, the bright yellow walls, yeah. the, the sense of welcome. It was something different. But at the end of the day, um, you might walk in there thinking that you were going to get a quick, inexpensive lunch. Yeah. But what you got was so much more because of the quality of the food, because of what we were putting on the plate, the yep. ingredients, the taste, the fact that we were doing. Cutting out all the fluff and just helping good food be more accessible to that's right. a greater market. That's right. And yeah. whether, whether it was our, our, our grilled proteins or the specials of the day, which we would run um, a special soup, a special lunch, a special dinner. We did handmade pasta. We did fish to order. I mean, we were doing, we were doing things that you wouldn't normally expect in a place of that price. So aside from just completely underestimating the, the amount of volume you were going to do and not having the facility to kind of support that and the, the tools to support that volume. What were some of the lessons you learned during the, the first couple of years? It took two years from go f- from one location to two, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we were blessed to have uh, a lot of business up front. Yeah. And, and, and what that did was it pushed us to refine the service model constantly to try to make it easier on us, to make it easier on the staff, to make it faster. So um, to your point, we refined a lot of things in the moment. But it also uh, taught us that because we were scrambling for time, we had to get organized as as um, administratively. We had to. We Why had, were you scrambling for time? Well, the three of us were working from six in the morning till one in the morning, seven days a week, till we finally decided to close on Sundays or Mondays. We closed simply so we could give ourselves a day off. Do you think that's a big mistake a lot of people make? They say we're going to be open seven days a week. I'll say this. Um, it's hard to, in hindsight, it's hard to lose the revenue and it's hard to um, not provide what your customers are asking for. Yeah. Um, Which is to be open seven days To a week. be open when they want to eat. Yeah. Um, but I'll say this, that uh, in those scrappy days, those early days where we were closed on an entire day and everybody could depend on that, not just the three of us, but our, our teams... Um, where uh, we would take 10 days off between Christmas and New Year's, just close the restaurant. Yeah. And we did that for, for I, don't, I don't know how many restaurants we did that for until we decided that was just complete foolishness. <laughs> uh, 
um, or we were just so in need of cash that we realized that that wasn't going to work. Yeah. Um, those were really happy times of feeling like, wow, not only do we own our own business, but we're creating that business in the image that we would want it to feel like for our team members that they, wow, who gets 10 days off in, at Christmas time to be with your families yeah. and, and, it, and, and we may not have paid their full paycheck, but we paid a great portion of it. Yeah. You know, so how, how awesome that felt to, to take off and have holidays that we had never had as, as, as food people. Yeah. But to give that to our team members as well. That yeah. was amazing. I will, I will say that. So again, reflecting back on this first two years, thinking of pivots, evolutions, big changes that had the biggest impact on operation, profitability, efficiency, what were some of the big key pivots you made in that evolutionary process? I think we, um, we had started uh, our work on, on early systems yeah. because we all know what it's like when um, when Wednesday morning reels, rolls around and you realize that you didn't order proteins the night before uh, or that there's no produce order coming in or that you're, you don't have enough to-go containers to make it through lunch. Yeah. So developing the systems that made it uh, easier for our teams to do great, to not run out of stuff, to get ahead of the administrative functions. And when we talk about timing being so tight we were working so hard just to take care of the guest that we had to get organized so that we maximized the time where we were taking care of the, the business because we were like everybody else that's listening here your chief cook and bottle washer we're all doing all the work all the time yeah so the work that is essential to the business functioning but not essential to the guest needs to be done with a great deal of uh efficiency yeah what about the significance of three partners what are the benefits of that yeah, so, especially early on. So uh, the three of us, not one of us was soft in our opinions. Uh, we all uh, defended our opinions and our egos pretty strongly. But at the end of the day, like I said earlier, it's about the business. So the benefit of three partners is that you have a tiebreaker. Yeah. So we uh, established an agreement early on that um, that if it came to a vote, we were mostly unanimous on, on many of the decisions that we made on a day-to-day basis. But if there was something big and there was some level of dissension or disagreement, that we'd vote. Yeah. And so part of the lead up to that vote was maybe some lobbying. You know, I might take Matt for a walk or Matt might take Eric for a walk or, hey, you know, what do you think of this thing that we're talking about? Or Dave wants to do this thing. What do you think? But at the end of the day, we would vote our conscience on behalf of the business. So the benefit there was having good opinions uh, from three people who all saw the business slightly differently. You know, Matt might see it in terms of the system, the equipment, the ability to to do the volume. Eric might see it from the perspective of uh, the excellence of the food and the ability to deliver hot food, hot, cold food, cold, whatever. Um, and I might see it from a... Uh, cost-effectiveness perspective or um, a marketing perspective or the ability for the team to do the job or whatever. Yeah. But everybody gets to argue that point. So if it's if we're talking about napkins, which is an example of that story on a, on a steroidal level um, in our book, um, 
if we're talking about napkins, everybody's arguing something on behalf of napkins to make a really good decision at the end. Got it. Um, what about the power of just like when, how would you, you get time off? So uh, the three of us went into the business with a lot of experience working uh, for others. Yeah. Working every holiday, working every night, every weekend night, knowing what it was like to have a girlfriend or a wife yeah. that was looking at us like, what What are you doing and what is this business you're in that's yeah. so all-consuming? Coming home at 1, 2 in the morning smelling like god-awfulness. <laughs> so we knew that if we had the chance to be captains of our, our own destiny, we were going to shoot for not always achieve, but shoot for some level of life work balance or yep. at least respect for both. So we were committed to that being true for all of us and for our team members. So one of us in the early days would work a double so that somebody got a full day off. Um, we were always looking at, okay, well, what do, you, what do you have coming up that's important to you so that I can support you? And if you're going to go away for a long weekend, I'm going to work extra. And then when you come back f- fresh and and ready, I'm going to go away for a little bit, right? My turn. So we can support each other so that you don't have to have a great work experience, but be dragging your life behind you. Yeah. I think it's so important to, I think, I don't know why people are so adverse to partnerships. I don't think you can be as competitive as you need to be today without partners. And especially that first two years, you're going to have to be, you're going to be trapped working in your business until you can create those layers between yourself and the work. And that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And most people burn out before they ever reach that point of being able to, to build those layers. But when you have partners, you can lean on people. You might get sick. Like you can take a break. You can, you can get the rest you need when you need it. When you have the partners that is, I think just undervalued generally speaking. Yeah, that and communication with your partner. Yeah. So it's one thing to have partners and to all be good at something different, which we've already talked about. Um, Just the brainstorming, the, yeah. the getting it out. Yeah, and, yeah. and to have uh, agreements in place. This is how we handle these things. Like like I was saying about we, we, had, we had a two-thirds vote. But also our respect for each other in terms of like when are we going to talk to each other? When are we actually going to sit down and have a weekly or daily coffee together and talk about the things that are important? Uh, how are we going to own our lanes? How are we going to not gossip? How are we going to uh, support our team members and communicate with each other so that we can all answer with the same consistent voice? How are we going to resolve conflict when it comes up? And when stuff comes up like resentment, how are we going to deal with it? Yeah, Because a lot of partnerships end up blowing up because I have this idea of how, how things should be and you have an idea of how things should be and your feelings are hurt or my feelings are hurt, but we never actually talk about it. We just start to grow resentful of each other. Yeah. Just being able to get it out and be able to verbalize your, your emotions and your thoughts and your visions, it, it, it almost makes it, makes it more sticky because now it's out in the universe. It's not internalized. It's not bottled up. Having partner being it forces it out of you, right? So it forces it, makes it real. Well, it's a partner, yeah, as exactly. opposed to a, whatever you might call yeah. an adversary. So I'm going to zoom up to thirty thousand feet real quick and get the big picture because I can't believe how fast this conversation. It's already an hour and a half of recording time. Um, I'm I'm happy to go a little bit longer if you're happy to go if, if you're able to. But let's, let's do it. Let's, all right, awesome. So 2006 to 2008, 2008 is your, your second location, San Diego. Uh, you have two locations until 2009. Uh, then you open your third location in West Hollywood, which we're sitting in today, the third location. No? Well, 
No, we're we're in, we're in Westwood. I'm not. I'm, uh, I have no idea where we are. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just telling the Uber driver. Here's an address. Take me there. Where are we? We're in Westwood, which is not West Hollywood. Thank you. Yeah, we're fine. Um, and so uh, a little bit of ways from here, we opened our our third restaurant in um, in an amazing neighborhood uh, called West Hollywood. And then <laughs> and then and then we uh, we opened our fourth. Um, a little ways down uh, Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. I can't uh, tell you what number we're sitting in right okay. now. I don't remember. It's not significant, but I thought we were in the third location, but I'm just not really familiar with where we are right now. <laughs> sure. So 2009 was your third location, and then in 2000, and then you had three locations until 2013, correct? And that's when you went gangbusters, and you opened your fourth location, and by 2015, you had 22 locations. We opened our fourth in 2010, then, okay. Then we opened. Uh, we opened a couple more. We were always opening restaurants. Uh, we just we hit our. I think we hit our stride in like 2012, 13. Yeah, and that's when you really started to go game busters. And by 2015, you had 22 locations. Mm-hmm. So take us through. Like, where does it make sense during the, up to this point, up to 22 locations? Where were the evolutionary like bottlenecks and pain points and pivot points for you? One was and continued to be capital. Okay. The biggest. The biggest distraction uh, for us was always the search for capital. And we, we had this uh, very protective idea around our own equity and the equity of our legacy shareholders that we didn't want to dilute anybody unnecessarily. We didn't want to raise more money than we actively needed and could deploy because we figured the more stores we end up having, the more we can go out to investors at a higher valuation. In other because words, your EBITDA is higher. That's right. Okay. So Because you have more assets and mm-hmm. that makes you more valuable. Because you're not just investing in the pony, you're, you're in, investing in the pony and the stall. And like the, the, the gable, I guess, what do you call it? The whole shabam. It's not just the, the people, but the assets they bring along. That's right. And we're, we're um, at, each, at, each, uh, at each offering, each time we're going out for, for money, we're estimating the value of the company based on current earnings and maybe somewhat projected earnings. And we want that to be the best picture possible for the uh, increased value in, for, for shareholders. I know at one point your second location, San Diego, wasn't always profitable. That didn't start as hot as the first location. No, exactly the opposite. Was it super hot? I thought it- no, exactly the opposite oh, yeah. from, from our first location. Yeah. You're right. Uh, so my, my thought, like, I've always thought, and I'm starting to see the other side to this, but I always say let cash flow and people determine your growth. Um, and you were you did eighty million dollars worth of revenue in 2015, 22 locations. Where were you putting the the, rep, the profit? Why not put the profit back? And was the profit just not there to scale at the rate you wanted to scale? Like, what's the the point of not letting your 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 natural growth dictate, or your your natural cash flow dictate your growth? Well, I think it's a question of of how fast you want to grow how fast you want to take advantage of your novelty um you know we had we had a plan that we were trying to stick to we may have we may have one uh underestimated the costs early on and i think we we got way better at it we also may have overestimated our margins and you use the example of our second restaurant our second restaurant uh contributed nothing to the growth of the company for a long time until it hit its stride and it took a lot longer than we had anticipated. And it was, listen, we, 
I have no regrets about opening our second location in Point Loma outside of San Diego. We uh, we had Pete down there, which was the major driver for us. Is who is going to be able to take the ball and run with it? Where are they? And let's open because opening your second restaurant two and a half hours away from your first restaurant not an awesome intuitive choice in terms of how difficult it's going to be but pete was there and we trusted that pete was going to take the ball run with it and do better than we could have ever imagined and truthfully um the fact that the restaurant wasn't an overnight success forced pete and ryan his buddy uh and us to look at ways to do more with less to streamline our operation, to rethink how we staff the place. So his innovations in order to get us into the black were innovations that then made Applied things in, in LA even better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what what ended up happening? What When did you get to the point where the second location was humming? What happened? What was the, the, the pivotal point? I think it just took time to develop its reputation. Yeah. It wasn't known. There uh, was some outside things happening to construction, right? You guys did not know about the construction location so uh, we opened a, a restaurant and we violated one of our own principles in opening it at the time we were a, a hat in hand tenant you know yeah. we'd go and see the landlords we'd say hey we've got this concept that we did and they say uh, sure so what's your track record well we've been open in la for two years going gangbusters that's great how many more do you have we don't okay so some locations that we saw that were really cool were either scary expensive for us or they didn't have certain elements that we thought were important. And we settled on this one. It was, it was a little bit of a romantic decision because it was in a historically significant landmark building in Point Loma, which is where these guys were from. Um, it was very pretty. But it was on the backside of a decommissioned naval academy. It, was, um, it had no frontage one of the things that we didn't understand was that it, because it was a historically significant building, signage was going to be super limited. Yeah. Um, so it just took a long time for people to find us. And because we didn't believe in marketing outside of telling some stories, the, the public at large were not reading those stories. Yeah. We were not really connecting to the idea of getting the word out there we just figured people would show up and they did yeah and what that rep- what that restaurant got a reputation for was where people where chefs would go on their days off for lunch or dinner and that became the calling card because everybody wants to go eat food where chefs go yeah yeah that's great stuff so back to this idea of growth and it sounds like the reason why you were constantly raising money is because you said you wanted to preserve the novelty meaning you were the you started as kind of like the the only ones that were doing this, but it didn't take long for other people to see that you had something. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We got copied. So is that a bad thing? It's flattering and exasperating at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember a, a line from the book somewhere along the lines that what Eric wanted to do is really make a difference, that there's something wrong with the world, that he wanted to make a restaurant that was going to be better, that was going to treat food better, that was going to make good food available to more people. By opening, by, by seeing quote-unquote copycats or people who saw that you had something you wanted to, to mimic what you're doing, in a, in a sense, aren't you like achieving that? Sure. When you're, when you're fighting for your existence, it's, uh, it's very altruistic to yeah. see it that way. Yeah. When you see, um, when we saw people 
open restaurants with our team member trucker hats, the same service trays mm. that we were using, baking trays. When we saw them uh, have our same produce when they were mimicking menu items, yeah, you feel like, hey, man, yeah. why don't you come up with an idea of your own? Yeah. So, yes, to the to the to the um, to the argument that we are improving the supply chain, bringing down costs, helping people eat healthier, better, make inspiring better f- people. No doubt. Know? Yeah. No doubt. You know, uh, and like I said earlier, we want the place that um, we wanted to be the place that people would would um, eat the kind of food that they would make at home if they could, if they had time to go to the farmers market, buy some great ingredients, yeah. and and make food. I think w- we contributed early on to the same contribution made by the Food Network, mm-hmm. inspiring people to make food at home because they could see, wow, this is simply made and absolutely delicious. Why is your chicken so good? Well, it's because of the chicken primarily, yeah, and the marinades of fresh herbs and good olive oil and good salt and good pepper and da 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 that stuff is inspiring to people or seeing plainly, well, maybe not plainly, but simply roasted vegetables at the peak of season and say, wow, that's so good. I could do that. Yes, you absolutely can. Yeah. So I, I identify like three major uh, like sprints to get cash. There was the initial to get started. Then there was the second wave to really go from like the, the four to the 22, mm-hmm. right? And then there was, an, it seemed like a, a point you guys reached that like, if we're really going to take this thing nationwide, we need to go one more time. Is that safe to say? Like four spurts? Yes. So what was different between the first spurt and the second spurt? Like the way you had to change how you were getting money to appeal to a different, I guess, market of investors. So I'm, I might not dovetail exactly with your, your sprint, okay, yeah, yeah, but, but I'll say this. The first round was friends and family. Got Anybody it. that we could think of to ask to write a check, we did. The second round, surprisingly, was mostly customers. We tapped out our friends and family. We didn't know any rich people. So there were customers, guests coming into the first location and even the second location saying, how can I be a part of this? Okay. Awesome. Were you we, taking names, making a list, so when you were ready, you could go back to them? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'd say, can you sit right here and <laughs> yeah. wait for a second because yeah. I'll leave the line. And <laughs> <laughs> I got it. So, um, so, so that was the second... And we didn't take any uh, any money that was big league until much after that. So the subsequent rounds um, were the same people that had discovered us and who wanted to be a part. We did many, many small rounds. And then we brought in a family office. Okay. And the only thing different there was the amount of money and some of the terms. So we got more sophisticated in our terms. Yeah. That, so that was another question I had. How are your terms evolving? What was the offer? What did that look like? If we want, like, how do we even go about structuring that? Well, the one thing that never changed was that uh, we were offering our investors an investment in the totality of the company and not just a unit. Okay. So we believe that we want to take as many people on the ride with us as possible. So, that was the investment you were making. You were, you were buying into the future vision of the company. Ten-year plan. Ten-year plan. That's yeah. right. Uh, you also, we haven't mentioned the other partners. Every chef that opens a restaurant with you was a partner too, weren't they? They weren't just employees. They were partners in that location. No. They, were, they were offered uh, short-term and long-term incentives to come okay. to the company. Got it. Um, what about just like between going from like four locations to like 22 locations? What were the growing pains? What were the things that you didn't anticipate that we should anticipate? Like how did you evolve 
I don't want to make this sound like we had everything figured out because we certainly didn't. But when people would ask us, uh, prospective investors would say, okay, man, you have three locations, but how are you going to get to five? How are you going to get to 10? How you we always had the same answer. We're going to hire really great people. And in hiring, uh, in the very beginning, we had an idea that this was a white tablecloth food in a call it, uh, cafeteria concept, but we were going to have people with a certain amount of pedigree. You had to have at least five years of fine dining experience in the kitchen to come and lead one of our restaurants because we needed to be sure that you you could handle it from a culinary perspective. Mm-hmm. Run the team, monitor the food, really put great food out, right? So, so that's that. And then if you had service chops on top of that, that was even better. Yeah. Um, so each time we hired a chef, that chef came with some level of opinion and foresight and management into making us better and streamlining. Some more than others. Some were just happy to play along and yeah. did, did great jobs doing that. And others would help us evolve and make sure that we were doing what we needed to do. And we spent enough time uh, in the early days seeking out their opinions of things to make things better because they were vocal. Listen, yeah. they're chefs. They were, yeah. were going to say, you know what? This is taking too long. This doesn't work for us. This is what slows us down. This is what makes the product suffer. Let's fix it together. So we would. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so not only did we have these little mini factories that were creating specials every day and we weren't systematizing those specials. Every chef, that was their candy, right? Yeah. So they were able to create their own specials. So 22 restaurants, 44 specials daily being put out. So there was that laboratory and then there was also the laboratory of, well, if I did it this way, it works better. Let's try that for a week. Okay, great. Now let's bring that to the team. Mm. Okay, now we're going to document that as a system, as a training adapt, uh, adaptive measure, and we're going to distribute it out to the team. We started early in this conversation, this idea of doing it one, th- one time, documenting it, writing it down, how can we do it better? So it's that times the amount of locations you have. All like, So you're exponentially refining at this point. That's right. Yeah, I love that. Um, you also, you're known for the teams you put together. You said, how are you going to do this? We're going to build great teams. How were you building these great teams? What were you doing that nobody else was doing around culture and team building? Uh, so in two different places, we were, um, we were building teams, right? We were building teams at the, at, the, at the restaurant level. Yeah. And that was about having a great chef in place. And I, I'm, I'm not going to say that we hit the ball out of the park 100%. We we hired chefs who were very chefy sometimes because we respected their pedigree so much, but we underestimated the amount of chefiness that they would bring to the table that yeah. they would not be able to get past. Um, and then there were other chefs who came chefy who were transformed by the idea of tapping into what it's like to be a parent to your team members. And I remember uh, having multiple conversations with chefs who were like, yeah, but he burnt a whole tray of hazelnuts and it seems like he did it on purpose. And, and, and tapping and having that chef think about, well, what would it be like if your son or your daughter fell off their bike in front of the house riding in the street? Yeah. Is that the approach that you would take? No. Well, what would you do? I would pick him up, dust him off, give him a hug, ask him where it hurt, give him a kiss. Yeah. Okay. So what if you did that with the guy that burned the hazelnuts? What would that be like? And so because of uh, 
the culture that we had created in Culver City with a bunch of kids from Venice High who either had no mom or no dad or lived with grandparents or you know came from messed up environments at home or were foster kids. Um, we've developed our own parental muscles as dads and coaches far more than chefs or bosses. And we spread that culture. So at the team level in the restaurants, we wanted our people to feel loved and cared for and connected so that they would stay longer, they would work harder, they would feel more excited, but mostly because that's just the right way to be. Because, and also, a lot of these people never were given a chance. That's exactly right. And they, they just needed a chance. That's right. And I think that's a, you get, there's a whole chapter dedicated to what you guys did with, uh, I guess, dis, uh, underprivileged youth. Is that a say? Like a, a, Emancipated foster youth was the, was the direction that we took. Yeah, and just being an outlet for people who were never given a chance. I think this industry is so good at that of just taking people that are just hidden gems and just giving them an avenue to run and an opportunity. How has that served you? So when Eric, uh, when Eric decided, and I, I give him full credit for, for taking this ball and running with it. And, and he describes the why behind creating the sustainable life project or SLP. The idea was, um, Emancipating foster youth have uh, a disproportionate uh, level of likelihood of, of failure on some level because they're not taught life skills early on. They're so in survival mode that it's really hard for them to cope. And because of the incidences of, of, of violence, neglect, trauma, trauma general, yeah. on unspeakable levels, uh, many of them have addiction issues, uh, high degrees of homelessness. It's all they know. It's all they know. So if we could create uh, an environment in partnership with um, organizations that help those people find us, yeah, because going out to find foster youth is is tricky business. But if we could find folks who were uh, functioning through the system, and and particularly those who were coming out of the foster system, and give them a chance to learn a skill, learn life skills have a chance at developing a trade and be successful. And we said, Hey, if you can survive, if you can come into the dish pit for 30 days and you can survive that and you can go on to prep and you can survive that and you can show up and suit up and, and bring your 50% to the table, then we'll meet you with 50%. We'll say, Hey, if you can get through the program, you've got a job at tender greens, not only that a paid job, but you've got a chance to, to actually do something Big with your life that never would have happened. A path for growth, a, a, a way to get from where you are to pick a destination will help you get there. That's exactly right. Yeah. What else did you do regarding culture that was powerful that served you? So I mentioned that there were two places where this was happening. So there was the stores, the restaurants where that culture was happening. Um, and then there was the burgeoning home office. We were, we were starting to develop a team of leaders, whether that was the regional managers who were taking care of a group of, of restaurants and needing to learn new skill sets, or it was the people that were starting to join us in human resources, accounting, marketing. And for them, the culture piece was, we want you to bring all of your expertise to the table, areas where we have sort of tapped out in terms of our usefulness for the company, but we also want you to have a healthy dose of respect for what actually happens at the restaurants because that's the engine that is the key to our prosperity. So we want you to be 
incredibly respectful of what's going on there because it's a lot harder than what's happening here. Here, this may be complex and it may be brainy, but in terms of actual um, just level of exhaustion, stress, you know, it's hard at the stores. So we, we want you to never forget that. And we want all of that to feel like it comes together in service to the guest and in service to each other. If you're not serving the guest, you're serving the person who's serving the guest. Yes. That was sort of the philosophy. Yes. Um, in terms of what we were doing that sort of not only fostered that, but expanded on that, man, we, we would have, uh, we would have picnics where we get together and we'd have gratitude circles or acknowledgement exercises. We'd have goat yoga. We'd, um, We'd, we started doing emotional intelligence um, gatherings in restaurants where three crews would come together at 7 o'clock in the morning and talk about their feelings and how their feelings cause them to have stress or fear or shame and what they typically do with that and how to pick a better path forward. So these are, these are young people who are getting together to talk about what's important to them and how it's affecting them and, and, and a better way to cope so that they're not torpedoing their careers, but they're actually enhancing their level of, of, of soft skill management. How do you protect this? You know, I feel like people have these ideas where they want to do these initiatives, right? How, what things do you put in place to protect that these things are maintained and they happen consistently and that they're not just an idea that fizzle out, out, but they continue to grow and get better. What were you, how do you, build this culture and maintain this type of culture. So when Eric and I were uh, years and years ago um, doing train the trainer, just like the, the first level yeah. of, of creating some level of, of young leadership. Right. And the first thing that we would do when we sat down with them is we would say, okay, we got a flip chart here. We want you to tell us all the things that keep you up or stress you out that you wish you could get some information on before the end of this. And we just listened to them and they'd write a whole list of, they'd dictate a whole list to us of things that we were going to do. This had nothing to do with the agenda of train the trainer, but we, we knew that we had this one chance to be with them for two days to talk about what was important to them, not what was necessarily just important to us. We would end up that the last thing that we would do before we said thank you and goodbye to them was go back to that list and cross off everything that we had touched on. So that we made sure that we were weaving in their needs with our own needs to communicate to them on how to be good trainers. Mm. So we were solving their problems in real time with them and allowing them to go back more empowered to their workplace. I love that. Um, so one other thing I want to make sure we talk about, uh, and it seems like it's something I wanted to mention earlier. From day one, it seems like you recognized that you had to build layers between yourself and the work. And you knew that was something you were going to have to do. You wanted, you said that you admired people like Wolfgang Puck, who had these namesake restaurants, but they weren't stuck in the business every day. They were working on their businesses, not in their businesses. And it seems like from day one, you realized you had to build these layers, build these layers, build these layers to further remove yourself from the grind, the daily grind. But you're constantly working on the business. What advice do you have for us to, to, to slowly over time move ourselves away from the business? So, uh, from in the business, so you could be on the business. Yeah, great. So, uh, I think everybody should read The E Myth mm -hmm. uh, by Michael Gerber uh, because it talks about that exactly. But also, um, I think it's really important for everybody to understand the notion of leaking power. And um, I talk about this a lot with my, with my clients. Um, leaking power. Leaking power. So, when I do something, 
that somebody else in the organization could be doing, I'm leaking power. And I'm leaking power in two ways. One, I'm spending less time doing the things that only I can do that would take the company forward that nobody else can do. If I'm not doing them, then they're not getting done. That's the first way that I'm leaking power. And the second way that I'm leaking power is I'm preventing somebody else from feeling powerful. Mm. So imagine what it would be like the thing that you do that is pretty tiresome for you. You've been doing it for years. You're good at it. You don't want to make the investment in time to explain it to somebody else because it's just easier and better if I just do it myself. That notion is not only doing you a disservice and your company a disservice, it's penalizing somebody who would feel so amazing if you simply went to them and explained to them, hey, I think this is something that you could do really yeah. well that you'd be amazing at even better than yeah. me. And I'm going to explain to you how to do it. Would you like to do that? It's an opportunity to be seen. At the end of the day, we all just want to be seen. And if you're trying to do it all, you're, you're sucking away opportunities for others to be seen and valued and feeling like a part of it. Agree. I love that. Um, we also have to talk about the third round of so you're, it seems like you're building layers, building layers, building layers, further removing yourself. Um, the, the, it's almost like raise, you use the analogy of raising a child. And you, 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 the parents raise this child and you inject your values, your beliefs into this child. But eventually the, t- the child grows up. If you do a good enough job, the child doesn't need you anymore. The child de- develops a voice of its own, a, a direction of its own. And it sounds like that at some point at, happened to you. And it sounds like it happened right around 2017. I alluded to this earlier that... I think you used the words, um, it wasn't evolution. It was, um, I have it in here somewhere. I have to find my notes. It's all messy. It wasn't revolution. Oh, sorry. It was revolution, not evolution. Do you remember those lines from the word, from the, the book? Maybe those, these were Eric's words. Maybe give me, give me a little contest. For it. So there was a point and it was when you, you end up going to, I think it was 2016 to 2017. It was that third wave of, of, um, of that third push to really get to that next level of that next level of investors where you're going to capital investors, people who their job is acquiring or partnering with restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, specific, specifically you partnered with ACG and union square hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, they had other ideas get into that. When you, when you start bringing in partners and other entities, what can happen? Sure. So, um, when we, uh, went out to find our first institutional investor. Um, and this is, you know, the, the idea that, okay, so finally we're ready for, for um, some level of, of investment that's uh, larger than we were ever accustomed to, uh, more uh, strategic partner than we ever had. We had, up until then, had quiet money that we wrote a check and then waited and showed up for lunch once a year to yeah, this so isn't going to just be a check. This next investment is going to be a check, and they're going to round you off. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so um, uh, when we decided that that was going to be, there was a the courtship process with many different suitors, people that were interested um, from um, venture capital to private equity um, and uh, and strategic partners that we were hoping could bring to the table areas of expertise that we didn't have. And so we met with many and we realized that one thing that was going to be important was to go into that as mindfully as we went into other things and to really come up with a list of criteria. Yeah. Um, and that criteria was anything from um, 
are we going to be proud to go back to our team and say, we just made a deal with so-and-so? Yeah. Is that going to feel good or is that yeah. going to feel like, oh my God, they sold out? So that would be one criteria. Another criteria would be their perspective on our growth plans. Another would be how they resolve conflict. Uh, another would be what they're willing to do in terms of the the the, the situation of power, decision-making, who's actually in charge, who's running the show, all the kinds of things like that. And then what are they bringing in terms of value add besides their money? Yeah. Right? So we went through uh, our vetting process. Call it dating. It was total dating. <laughs> yeah. Total dating, right? And at the end of one of those uh, sort of call it unfortunate meetings at a Hilton somewhere near an airport, um, uh, one of our advisors said, well, if you could have it all your way, who would it be? And uh, the three of us said, well, Danny Meyer would be great. Yeah. And and that's exactly what happened three weeks later. We, we ended up having uh, a chance to meet him who said uh, something at the time that was remarkable to us, uh, which was um, when I had the food of tender greens in my mouth, I wished that I had come up with this concept. <laughs> that must have been such a compliment from a, from a guy like Danny Meyer. Well, yeah. I mean, so I, I took night classes at the Learning <laughs> Annex in Lower Manhattan from him in 93. This is a guy I respected for yeah. a long time, read the book. Got, you know, my, my greatest experience, even though I couldn't afford it, was to go get French fries and a martini at, at Gramercy you know, yeah. or, or Union Square Cafe and sit at the bar <laughs> and just watch the art happening it's almost surreal right now you're sitting at the same table becoming partners with this guy. yeah i'm in the front seat of a sprinter van That's, with him it's crazy going to look at our restaurant <laughs> um so uh that was a, a long courtship and once we once we made our deal one of our advisors said you know the good news is uh you got a big check and the bad news is you got a big check yeah and that was a cautionary moment for us to recognize that there's an um, expectation with that check. Yeah, that 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 uh, Danny Meyer and and well Union Square Hospitality and their financial partner in this endeavor, Alliance Consumer Growth, were going to have expectations, and uh, that they were also going to want to support us and push us in ways that we might be uncomfortable. Yeah, and so um, that was. Um, really a remarkable process that sometimes was amazing and sometimes was really painful for us. Yeah. Um, so thinking back to Danny Meyer and the, I know that you, you point to a lot of lessons he taught you like next level type lessons that I thought were just great. What were maybe one or two of those big lessons that you, you share them in the book, but resurface those now for us, the, the type of mindset he got you into sure. bringing on this partner. What was the benefit of that? Well, I don't want to state the obvious. So, like you know, having having a master restaurateur um, at the table is validation on the one hand that he that he got our concept so much so that he wished he created it was an amazing feeling. So we feel we felt at the table got by him. Yeah. But also, here's a guy who was way further along in his trajectory than we were at the time. And so we had so much to learn from him. And anytime uh, Danny talks, there's a story and there's a lesson. And they're all really, really good ones. And so a couple of the ones that come to my mind 
Uh, one is shortly after the deal uh, concluded, we were having a chef summit where we invited all of our executive chefs to come from throughout California down to LA for, for two days of learning and sharing and fun. Um, and he happened to be in town for a board meeting um, and he agreed to come and talk to the nice. team. And wow, awesome, right? So um, he comes in and he's telling some stories about uh, growing up in St. Louis and hospitality and just loving it. And then he says, I, I want you guys to consider this. Imagine if your if your guests were coming to your restaurants for the service, that's what they were paying for, and the food was free. Imagine how that would change your perspective of what's important on the other side of the the counter. Mm. If they were paying for the service and the food was free, what would it be like? And I think everybody had the little hair stand up on the back of their neck. Paradigm shift. Yeah, paradigm shift. And so as was often the case in spending time with Danny, um, oh, wow, that's cool. That's something that I can latch on. And not only can I latch onto it for myself, but I can go back and share this with my team. Yeah. What were some of the uncomfortable lessons he taught you? He pushed you out of your comfort zone. He helped you see the world differently from your own personal perspective when it comes to becoming an evolving restaurateur. Uh, Bark is probably the the one. What do you mean? Dogs bark? What are you talking about? Uh, The bark on a tree. Oh, okay. That, um, you know, we, we loved love the people that work at tender greens. That was a big part of your success and something that you guys held really close and dear to your heart. Something you did not want to let go from is the, the loyalty to your people. That's right. And and yet objectively speaking, if we were putting the business first, there were, there were people who may have stayed too long that uh, had stopped learning and growing that weren't up for the, you know, what, what got you here isn't going to get you there. Yeah. That kind of thing. And so uh, Danny's analogy was that a tree, in order to grow, needs to shed bark. The bark needs to fall away so that the tree trunk can expand. And then by doing that, the tree grows and it grows new bark. And it creates more opportunities. And maybe that bark that you shed can go be an opportunity for somebody else to help them get to where you were at that point. That's right. You know? How hard was it for you to swallow that pill? I think there's the there's the times where you you know that in your heart that this is somebody you need to say goodbye to, and then there's the ones where you're a little blind, either because of your loyalty uh, or or because you're just not seeing things clearly. Um, and those ones are harder, you know, um, uh, Danny talks about uh, the difference between a hard decision and a difficult decision. Yes. Um, what's a difficult decision? It's one where you, you know, you have all the data, um, uh, and you just have to make that decision. Uh, you you have everything that you need in order to make the decision, but it's it's gut wrenching on some level or um, you know, like that. Yeah. What's a hard decision? Hard decision is where it's actually not that clear. Okay. 
it's not clear and you have to do more research and you have to get more counsel and then you know so uh one is um challenging on the level of the amount of work that you have to do to do it and one is the emotional feeling of wow if i make this decision there's a there's a consequence to this that yeah that's painful for for me and for the the person entity whatever that's on the other side of the yeah. decision the consequences yeah uh, I mean, there's some just incredible lessons um, just from that section reflecting on how he helped you grow. How else were some of the ever like, like moving to this place where you're, it's almost like, like, like I said earlier, you're further removing yourself from the process, further removing to yourself from the process, putting those layers. Eventually, you and your partners left Tender Green, correct? Yeah. So um, we spent some time in the, in the latter years professionalizing the company obviously we needed we needed marketing help we needed uh, we needed support in many different places real estate um, and so we hired uh, professionals experienced professionals and in some of those situations we overcorrected we'd have hired somebody that was in, in real estate with a massive pedigree and a lot of experience but not a lot of fire in the belly or we hired somebody who wasn't the right cultural fit just because they had a ton of experience doing something that you know we felt we could grow from, um, whatever. Um, that growing made us have to reevaluate the contributions that we were going to make to the company. Because once you professionalize and you hire a marketing person, and you were sort of the jack of all trades for marketing, but now there's a marketing person, you have to. Yeah, give them that space to do their job. Right. Yeah. So then what do you do? Yeah. So in in each of the examples of professionalizing company, up up to me replacing myself as the as the head of the company and hiring a new president and feeling very magnanimous about it at first, saying, Hey, here's this woman who we've sought after, hired, believe wholeheartedly in, coming to run our company. I even said, Hey, take my office. I'm going to be out in the field. I'm going to do culture. I'm going to, and so she's running the company and um, having meetings with my team in her office with the door closed with and a glass, with a glass door. Invited. I'm not, not, not invited at all. Yeah. Uh, so that starts to be a hard place to be. Yeah. But I'll tell you this. Um, she gave me a gift where she, um, I, I outed myself cause I, I felt like I was like lurking. Like, you know, like checking out what was going on there and starting to feel a little resentful or lonely or whatever yeah. that was. I think it was the start of my grieving process. But um, she said, I could never have done what you did. I could never have built this company to the place where it needed somebody like me to come in and take over. Mm. And that was huge because it kind of set me free a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I ran culture for a while at a time in the company where it needed it needed it, but it wasn't enough of a priority because we were so into systematizing and professionalizing yeah. and we were, uh, we were tight on cash. And so like the priorities of the company were such that, uh, a heavy investment in culture in a, in a pretty healthy culture wasn't enough of a job for me. So my job ended up being kind of HRE, which is not either my area of expertise or my area of passion. Yeah. I, mean, I don't get to talk to people about this level of the, or this stage of the restaurant tour life cycle where you've done such a good job achieving your goals that the business doesn't need you anymore. 
and you almost have this sense of like like you call it like a restaurant tour empty nest yeah where the baby doesn't need you they've moved on and there was, it was almost you guys went through depression and you struggled with this it wasn't an easy transition for you like what was that like your identity was so closely tied to tender green and then when the when tender green says screw off mom and dad i'm out of here i don't need you anymore how do you cope with that um yeah thanks for asking the question so uh each of us in our time mm-hmm. found our place of like, okay, now's my, if I'm putting the company first, yeah. now's the time for me to bow out, mm-hmm. exit stage, whatever. And so we did. I, I don't want to speak for, for Matt. I, I don't want to speak for Eric. For me, it was around, um, I'm no longer enjoying my work. There are people that can do what I'm doing. And most importantly, and this came out of an ayahuasca ceremony. Plant the, medicine, as you'd say. Mm-hmm. The, the heartbeat of the company has uh, been redirected from my heart to the people in the, in the company who have been there for a long period of time and who have uh, co-opted, adopted... Uh, embraced and who fully give the heartbeat you've recreated yourself and others yeah like literally how you would create a child you know yeah. they're a piece of you yeah when you look at a kid and it's wow i can see a little bit of myself in, yeah. in them i could see so much that i realized okay even after i go it will remain true it's not going to die because because i'm not there yeah. to keep it alive because i'm not keeping it alive anymore and so that is both uh, humbling and gratifying and also yeah. a little bit terrifying and, and a little bit sad. Yeah, but you can also move beyond and you can continue to grow personally when you're able to shed the weight of your business, right? Because I know beyond this, Eric continued to, to focus on uh, <clears throat> micro bio uh, what's biodiversity and rejuvenating farming or yep. re- re- what's the word? Uh, regenerative farming. Um, what was that for you? What was your new muse, your new outlet? How were you growing beyond this? How are you evolving? How are you continuing to feel a purpose? So when I, I became, when it became clear that I was going to plan my exit strategy, well, the question was, well, okay, so then what? What, yeah. what, what will I do on day one after? And so I had the benefit of having uh, planned with, with our, our president and then CEO, um, a year. So I was going to take a year to, to say, say my goodbyes. And so um, I started thinking about what are the things that I love to do most um, at work. And what I love to do most is to help uh, guide people, support people in taking their next steps in uncovering their innate wisdom around the, the challenges that they find themselves facing mm-hmm. And I figured, well, when am I going to have a chance to go back to school and, and learn something and do something different? So I, I went and got a, a coaching certification, an IFC certified uh, coaching uh, certification, which is a really fun process to go back to learn some new skills, maybe a lot of which I had innately over the years because I went to the school of sort of restaurant hard knocks yeah. in terms of all that. And I'm a big believer in culture, but to actually go and learn something, I did. And then, um, and then I hung out a shingle to be to be a coach. And what I recognized is that 
with many of my coaching colleagues, they were and are people who um, know a great deal about the human condition and help people in meaningful, powerful ways, but they haven't necessarily run a business of the size that I yeah. ran and don't have the experience scaling. So that puts me in a unique place in a unique place to not just help restaurateurs and people wanting to scale multi-unit or grow their businesses um, in the restaurant space, but elsewhere because the same principles of creating purpose-driven enterprise apply across all industries. So um, as a result, I left just before the pandemic started, mercifully. Good timing. Yeah. In retrospect. Yeah, I, lots of people say, hey, I want to know, you know your stock <laughs> oh, takes and all that. But it, it just, that's the way it worked. Um, but I, you know, my, my goal was to take a week off and build my daughter a treehouse for her birthday and then hang out and have my shingle. Off. <laughs> I got two years off. But I also got some calls from some hurting restaurateurs yeah. and business people saying, what would you do? Yeah. And so I got to say, well, what do you want to do? Yeah. And have some thoughtful, meaningful conversations with them. Yeah. And, uh, and as, and, and that sort of, uh, created the basis for quiet advisory, which is the company that I run now where I help, uh, purpose-driven entrepreneurs and business executives navigate scale. And also to come back to the beginning of this interview, um, achieve not only happier at work, but also happier at home. Yeah. I've loved this conversation. Uh, I want to leave time for this B round, but I do want to ask you, um, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Right now, in this point in time, what transformation do you think the industry needs? How can we go into the future better? I think we've uh, come through a terrible, terrible, dark period that uh, created opportunity for some, uh, killed a lot of businesses, and put fear into a lot of people. And I think what I would like to say to folks is this is still the last bastion of human connection. This is still the place where people get to go um, to get away from life for a while, uh, to put on something fancy that they wouldn't normally wear, to eat food that they can't cook, to be served there's tremendous dignity in that. Yes. There's dignity in making sure the lighting levels are right, making sure that the music is at the right volume, um, making sure that the temperature is good, that the table doesn't wobble. There's dignity in putting great food on a plate and presenting it thoughtfully to the guest. There's dignity in checking in to make sure that they're happy in their experience and to not lose sight of the fact that this is still a magical industry and there's still incredible opportunity to grow it, expand it. And to be proud. And to be proud of it. Yeah. yeah awesome stuff. Great conversation. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. We're going to bust out a true speed round. This episode is brought to you by Sculpture Hospitality. Let's face it. Running a restaurant is hard work and very time consuming. You are constantly managing customers, employees, vendors, menus, marketing. The list goes on. Want something taken off your plate? especially something that's time consuming. I don't know, maybe something like inventory management. 
Is that a yes, a resounding yes? Well, then Sculpture Hospitality can help. Leave your inventory management to the experts while you focus on making your customers happy. With Sculpture, not only can they do the physical inventory counting for you, but they dive deep into your inventory data, combining that with your sales and purchase data using seamless integrations to give you real insights and visibility into your restaurant's profitability and putting your profits back where they belong. One other thing I think is really neat about Sculpture Hospitality is that you're not just paying for the inventory management. You're also paying for the expertise of the individual doing the inventory, whereas other inventory solutions just give you the system and not the human being. If you're ready to gain complete visibility and control of your bar or restaurant inventory, then get your free no obligation inventory consultation from Sculpture Hospitality. Right now, visit www.sculpturehospitality.com slash unstoppable. That's sculpture like the pretty things made out of stone that artists create. Hospitality.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Chow Now, a commission-free online ordering system and food ordering app helping restaurants feed their hungry customers. Over 20,000 restaurants trust Chow Now for their online ordering. This is because Chow Now helps restaurants keep their profits, own their online experience, meet their customers everywhere, and make every diner a regular. Here's how it works. Chow Now clients get listed on the free Chow Now marketplace. Once they're there, they can meet new customers and take unlimited commission-free orders through Chow Now's app and site. There is no setup fee or monthly payment. Now, this is what I really love about Chow Now. You get access to valuable customer data, which allows you to personalize the experience and the relationship with your guest. In other words, you own the relationship with your guests, something not all third-party ordering apps can claim. And we cannot wrap up this message without telling you about how to level up with Chow Now Direct. Chow Now Direct is Chow Now's comprehensive online online ordering and marketing package. With Chow Now Direct, you get your own branded ordering app for iPhone or Android, email and print marketing, plus POS integration and much more. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 30% off the Chow Now Direct annual plan. Sign up at www.chownow.com slash unstoppable. That's chownow.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Stay in your heart. What is your biggest weakness? Shit. Uh, my biggest weakness is probably um, judgment. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? Tell me a story about you doing something great. What is your biggest challenge today? balance what is one code of conduct or behavior core value you taught your teams the golden rule what is one uncommon standard of service you taught your team something that was common within the four walls of your restaurants not common throughout the industry. see when you look here when you listen what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner 10-year plan. <laughs> and uh, we, we covered a lot from this book, but I highly recommend that you go get this book because it gets into much more detail. And I would love to come, have you come back to do like a remote Zoom uh, workshop where we pick a chapter and just go deep or whatever you want to talk to. You're always welcome back. I get to um, spend more time with you. 
Yeah, I would let's love, do if, you're, if you want to. I'm putting you on the spot. We're let's do it. I would love that. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Take care of themselves. What is one service you've hired or outsourced? PR branding. Who's that? Call Christina Wong. Okay. What is one technology that has you really excited right now that if you, if somebody was asking you for advice, you would coach them to invest in this technology? Positive Intelligence. Is there a company that does? Is that the name of the company? Positive Intelligence. What is it? Well, contact me and I'll talk to you all about it. Okay. Uh, is there a website we can go to? Positiveintelligence.com. Okay. Got it. Uh, and this is the last question. Get ready for it. Really listen. It's a doozy. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be, depart- would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Hug everybody that you love as much as possible. One. Talk through anything. Anything can be resolved by communication. Two. Have fun because life is short. Three. I've loved this conversation, David. Thank you so much. You were a truly great guest. And we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. Who do you respect and admire and believe a great would be a great guest mentor like you've been for us today? If you can't think of just one, hit me with a bunch. Anyone you want. Anyone you who do you respect and admire? And if they were a guest in the show, you'd be listening to that because you know it's gonna be filled with gold. Restaurant owner. Have you had Danny on? I haven't. Call him. He's a great guest. Are you guys number? (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk. Okay. Uh, I would love to make that happen. Thank you so much. And uh, how can we connect with you if your your story, your advice resonated with us and we need coaching? Maybe you could be our advisor. What's the best way to connect? So um, either to learn more about me, the work that I do, or to get in touch, go to quietadvisory.com. You can communicate with me directly there. Even better yet, you can get on my calendar. Um, my social is at David T. Dressler. And if you want to uh, learn more about the book or pick up a copy, 10yearplan.co. Got it. And if you guys want to uh, get a summary of today's conversation, head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash whatever today's episode number is. It's in the title. I say at the beginning of the episode, restaurantstoppable.com slash that number. Uh, any links, books recommended uh david's book will be linked over there and how to connect with david and i just cannot say thank you enough david there is no questioning you are unstoppable thanks eric there we go another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable thank you so much for joining us today and thank you to our guests david dressler for diving deep opening up and sharing this incredible journey with us and man i cannot wait to pick up the conversation which is something that's going to happen uh david and i have already been talking we are planning on getting him back on the show we're still not quite sure exactly what we're going to talk about but we're going deep and we're going to pull back some more layers so if you guys enjoyed this one there's some more good stuff coming your way and a special thanks to Josh Copel for making this introduction and uh, really just such a great, great conversation. Again, I can't say it enough. Thank you. So we have some really cool things happening over at Restaurant Unstoppable. If you guys are catching this early on Monday morning, don't forget every Monday at 12 p.m. Eastern, I make myself live in the network for one hour to just chit chat. Talk about whatever you want to talk about. Uh, Tell me where the pain is. Maybe I can get somebody to join us and they can help you. Or maybe you just need some people to... uh, offload on we're there for you 
come hang out. We also have a couple lectures coming your way in the network this week. We're going to be talking to Christine Sismondo, who is the author of America Walks Into a Bar. I actually discovered this book while reading said Moses is Pouring with Heart. And I'm excited to dive into the history of taverns and bars to prove to you guys that restaurants and bars have the power to transform the world. And the truth is the hospitality, the bar, uh, the tavern industry has been doing it going as far back as the Roman times. So we're going to kind of hopefully inspire you and get you guys to realize that you have the power to transform the industry. On top of that, we have Pedro Shanahan, who is a part of the Pouring With Heart restaurant group, or I should say bar group, joining us, who's a career bar back, who's going to teach us how to get the most out of the bar back position. And we have part two of our onboarding process to either Restaurant 365 or Compete. So actually what we have going on is Bob Sloop, uh, Kaizen Management, and Michael McGovern from Amica's Pizza have both agreed to basically get transparent where we're doing open book management to the entire restaurant unstoppable network. So uh, basically Bob is going to be taking Michael through the process of onboarding a legacy platform, a technology platform. We don't know if we're going to go with restaurant 365 or compete. Uh, that's kind of where we left off is getting that information to figure out what's best. Uh, we're picking up that conversation Wednesday, 11 a.m. Eastern. Come hang out in the network. And I want to give a quick shout out to Sam and Savannah from SavinSam.com who helped me on this trip uh, with capturing content, videography, and photography. They're doing a great job. Uh, if you guys are in the market for that, reach out to them. So that's it for today. Thank you guys so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.